Greyhound leader to track one, over. Track one, we reach Greyhound leader, over. Greetings. I am usually referred to as the Master, universally, except when I'm being referred to as Terry Cooper, who plays the Master in the final game. My favourite companions, much like your favourite Doctor, I think, goes with the age you are, so the, the ones you remember from when you first started watching Doctor Who um, usually become your favourite Doctors and companions. So, um... I think my favourite all-time companion is Sarah Jane Smith, and she's pretty much everyone's favourite. Liz Sladen, uh, she was a good mix of the screaming companion from the past, but also the more assured, stronger character that a lot of companions after her would be. So, uh, you know, I think it's testament to her popularity that uh, the Sarah Jane Adventures was so popular, and she's still known as the companion that uh, people remember most fondly. I mean, she was my first sort of companion. Other than that, I did like Leela. Um, she was a totally different spin on um, a companion because she was, uh, at the start, savage and, you know, more willing to uh, annoy the Doctor by threatening to cut someone's throat or kill them. And the Doctor had to kind of... They had a kind of educating Rita or My Fair Lady type uh, arrangement where he was sort of helping her get used to the modern world. And, uh, I mean, she played it great. And obviously, uh, I remember her being my father's favorite companion um, because he used to watch the football and the racing results and everything else on a Saturday evening. And then Doctor Who would come on and, uh, strangely, he would sit there enjoying watching Leela. Just after her, um, I've got to give an honorable mention to Nyssa um, because I liked Nyssa a lot. She was... Not too much of a screamer. She was actually very bright, very intelligent. She'd often uh, impressed the Fifth Doctor with her um, um, uh, science and maths skills. And, you know, she was just a great, dependable character. Um, she didn't uh, have, you know, ridiculous hissy fits or anything like that. And I don't remember being too much of a damsel in distress. But, um, you know, listening to her years later in the Big Finish audio spare parts. Uh, it's just proof of how great she is. In the modern era of Doctor Who, I've been recently re-watching some of the Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi stories and Clara Oswald. And the funny thing I don't really get about Clara is she was a really well-written character. Um, Jenna Coleman's acting was off the charts. Um, she had a lot of heavy emotional scenes to, to play and, you know, she did them. She had a really good range and she was quick witted and clever and modern. And at the time I remember everyone online hating her. I don't know what it was. Was she supposed to be too smug or was she too, you know, um, clever for her own uh, good i'm not sure but um you know i i gotta say i think clara oswald's one of my uh favorite companions now of all time and if there was a chance of her being teamed up with either tom baker or uh david tennant i think that would have been incredible good evening everyone for the uh final game confidential audience this is chris mckeon today is the 10th of May, 2020, at 11.09pm, Mountain Daylight Time, 
This is a Sunday, and these are my questions and answers for the final game, Confidential Part Five. We are past the halfway point now. It's a nice little feeling.、Um, recently, Mark McManus、um, g- gave me the questions to the.、Uh, Later episodes of this confidential series, so I'm happy to record my next set of responses, and also to say, having just now finished listening to the final game, confidential part four, thank you again, Mark, for inviting me to do this、uh, series, and、uh, it's really a lot of fun. It's one of the highlights of the days where I have a moment to record. This、um, group of questions will focus on companions. Um, and Marks, who is he, is the person that comes up with these questions. His rationale, which is a good rationale, for this set of questions is that、um, since all the Doctor's friends are trapped together and forging their own plan for escape, and then that's the preamble for this next set. And this is the first question:、um, which is or are your favorite companion or companions?、Um, And my favorite companion is extremely easy to say, and this is the Brigadier.、Uh, no question about it. One hundred percent, always will be my first answer. There are other companions that I think are very good and very memorable. I love all the companions. I'm trying to find something, even in some of the more, quote unquote, sadly, in my opinion, maybe perhaps unfairly, maligned companions. Um, um, meaning, or at least, let me underrated is perhaps a polite word, but sometimes they are rather. Disliked or unappreciated, maybe the best word that would cover all this would be underappreciated companions, such as、uh, Dodo Chaplet or Melanie Bush or Adric. Um. Ah,、uh, so and various companions such as the such as these. Um. I'm trying to think if there are any.、Uh, maybe to a certain extent, for different reasons, like a Martha Jones, perhaps a little less noticed. Um, coming after Billy Piper and preceding Catherine Tate,、um, and but the or, or or I would say Rory might be a little underappreciated or overlooked, perhaps in, when overshadowed by the rather large, larger in life companions of Amy Pond or River Song.、Um, Bill Potts is probably fairly underappreciated too. Clara is. Definitely rather divisive. I tend to really like Clara. Be, be, believe it or not, I really enjoy Clara. I think that's a rather unpopular opinion right now, which is fine because there are reasons what people have for disliking Clara or any of these companions. Something like a Mel. Mel is very, very underappreciated. But um, um, and even perhaps even someone like Susan from the from the very beginning of the series is rather at times underappreciated. Um, but. I really enjoy all of these companions and the ones that are rather very much appreciated, like um, like um, Ace or Romana, Joe Grant, Leela, Tegan, perhaps Sarah, Sarah Jane, K Nine, definitely.、Um, there are quite a few companions. Toto is probably a bit underappreciated as well, but even so, I, I really try to find something within the companions to enjoy and to appreciate in their presence. And their contribution to Doctor Who, but for me, number one is no question, the Brigadier, Alastair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart.、Um, 
for me, I could talk forever about the Brigadier. <laughs> and I tend to speak a long time about these questions and answers anyway. I, I won't keep the soup very brief because I think there is a lot to say, but um, I will say that for me, the Brigadier represents... Um, among a few other characters from different, from Doctor Who, but and from other television series, um, such as Spock from Star Trek, or um, oh, I'm trying to think of any others. Perhaps even to a certain extent, Doctor McCoy from Star Trek. Um, you notice I don't necessarily mention Captain Kirk if I'm talking about Star Trek because, um, because. Um, my personality is not necessarily as dynamic <laughs> in that type of way, or very um, uh, bold, maybe, in, or, or 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 large in that type, in the mold of like a Captain Kirk or something like that. Although he's not nearly as large as probably someone like William Shatner in real life, but um, um, or Data, maybe a little like Captain Picard or something from the from Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, those are all... Some of those, those characters are rather touchstone-type characters. I may enjoy others like Captain Kirk. I very much enjoy, but I don't see a whole lot of myself within Captain Kirk. I see more of myself within maybe Spock or a Dr. McCoy or such. But in the case of the Brigadier, in the realm of Doctor Who, um, I find myself thinking about the Brigadier in terms of family and in terms of the heroes of my life. I very much think of him much like my, my, my grandfathers or my dad. Uh, the type of person that you want a man to be, how a man should be, how he should act, how he should conduct himself, how he should be a good man, a strong man, um, a leader, a thinker, Yes, the Brigadier is a thinker, in 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 many ways, and at different times in his life, he's never a foolish man. Sometimes people thought that he's played for laughs because he is a type of character that the more that you know him, the more that you can perhaps tease him a little bit because of his unwavering attitudes and and sensibilities and beliefs. But Nicholas Courtney, the actor who played him, never played him for laughs, as he said. Um, you can tease him, but um, not ridicule him. As some of our friends have said, that you get the sense that one gets the sense from watching the episode, certainly even in the unit era, that the the third Doctor may tease the Brigadier and and perhaps even uh, upbraid, upbraid the Brigadier, but he will never allow anyone else to do the same. That's the Doctor's privilege. Um. And perhaps the Brigadier could do the same to the Doctor. And he won't allow anyone else to ridicule the Doctor, of course. He will, he's there for the Doctor. He's there for his friends, for his brother, and for his, for his family. And the Brigadier as a character lasted for so long, across 40 or so years of Nicholas Courtney's life, um, that you saw him evolve and progress from a in the earliest years, from a, such a, an older brother figure, perhaps. Maybe a father figure but for some, but an older brother figure, or a younger brother figure, maybe a brotherly figure of authority in the unit years. 
second, third, fourth Doctor's era, to a father figure in the 1980s with the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh Doctors, into more of a grandfather figure through the um, the 90s and the, the 2000s um, with the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth Doctors. And when you when I see the the character the brigadier and who he is and what he stands for and that he is constant and and dignified and worthy and and really a righteous man so to speak he's quite uh, he's quite admirable and someone you that that for me of all these fictional characters uh, is definitely the one upon whom I have in a way connected the most and in some small ways, not in, in allowing fiction to rule my life, of course, too much, no, but, but in a small way, define some small parts of me, how I carry myself, how I conduct myself, how I act. Um, I don't act like the Brigadier, but I try to have that sense of stability, being a stable point of reliability and dependability, and, and that, that sense of, of dignity of what makes a man, who a man is. Um, I will I will say one thing, because I'm being very candid. It's one reason why I, I... One thing that I have not liked about the portrayal of the Brigadier indirectly across the years, and maybe some of the spin-off media, is when... is how, has, how often... Uh, and this may be a controversial opinion, but how often the Brigadier has been shown to have an, an illegitimate child or an illegitimate um, offspring through uh, some type of, a, of, a, of an affair. I'm not trying to make any moral judgments against people that perhaps have had that situation. What I am saying is that I've always seen the Brigadier as a, a man of loyalty and a man of... of of conviction and commitment and therefore I've always felt had the sense and personally felt the sense that the brigadier whoever he married he would be faithful to her again I'm not making moral judgments against people that have perhaps have situations where they have ultimately been unfaithful to their spouse there are many reasons that uh, are involved in such things I'm sure I'm not married I've never had a, uh, been in a relationship but I imagine that people have very difficult times with, in a complex situation as that. But I see the Brigadier as a man that would make a choice and be loyal to his spouse um, and weather any storms. We know the character has a back history of having been divorced and such. Um, but I see the Brigadier as being a bit sacrificial in a way and sacrificing his own feelings, perhaps immersing himself in his work to be able to avoid such the, the emotional problems. But I see himself as being self-sacrificing, putting others first. And that would be the main thing, that that is his character, put others first. And and in that case, I see him being someone that would be loyal to his spouse, um, maybe to a fault, <laughs> to, his, to his own detriment and destruction, but in, in that case. So it's just something that I have not really enjoyed in the spin-off media when it comes to the Brigadier, because... Not just because it happens, but because it seems to have happened so often. There's also an element of suspension of disbelief. And I don't mean to go on a tangent too much, but I'm, I'm being candid. In my, because it's my interpretation of the character. And 
when it comes to fiction, we are allowed to have a selfish, or at least a self-centered element to it, how we interact and interpret the character. And in my mind, the brigadier is a man that would be, for better or for worse, um, faithful to his spouse. And we see several instances in the, where there are strong suggestions or outright statements, oh, this is an, an illegitimate um, child to the brigadier. And I think, without making moral judgments, I just don't think that that is within the character of the brigadier. I'm not saying this from a, from a judgmental perspective, from a character perspective. I just don't see that happening with the brigadier. Not something that would happen more than once. Um, I'm, ta- I'm thinking of characters like Katiado Lethbridge Street, which, which is apparently a, uh, one of the brigadier's... Um, um, offspring, uh, a descendant, but based on a, an affair that he has with a with an African pre, um, princess, I think. Um, but then you also have a, a, character, a situation where he has, um, in some of the books, a, a, an illegitimate son, and and then another situation where he has another illegitimate child. I think, and I, I just I'm thinking to myself, again, I just don't think that's within the brigadier's character. So I'm, I don't want to go on any more of a tangent on that, but I, but it sh- but I say it to mention that this is how much I think about the character. This is how much I think about who he is, and and what it means to be a man, and what it means to be a, true to your character and consistent with your beliefs. Um, just also to show how much I um, have thought about the character, of the brigadier. Um, one example. Uh, one good example that shows the qu- few examples, but one, the there's a scene at the, at the climax of the Clause of Axis, where the brigadier briefly thinks that the doctor has been killed in the nuclear um, explosion, the nuclear um, overload, power station's destruction, and the look on Courtney's face showed the, the quality of his acting, and the depth of the relationship between the doctor and the brigadier, even at that point, which is relatively early in in um, the series history for the Doctor and the Brigadier, there's just a very subtle look of sorrow and shock and disbelief and loss on Courtney's face, which speaks so many volumes. But then, of course, the TARDIS materializes and the Doctor is fine. The Brigadier is one of those few characters who we find eventually the Doctor seems to know about the manner of his death. In Battlefield, the Doctor says, you're supposed to die in bed. Um, which was um, referenced, of course, um, implicitly in, in um, The Wedding of River Song, when the Doctor learns of the Brigadier's death, the 11th Doctor. Um, I suppose I should, I, I will say, because I'm speaking about things that I feel, where I feel strongly about the character. Um, I, when Nicholas Courtney died, um, this was not too long after the law of the his the loss of his appearance in the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, um, where he would have appeared in that television episode alongside Sarah Jane and David Tennant's tenth Doctor. But Nicholas Courtney's health, uh, having suffered a stroke some months before the filming began, was such that he wasn't able to film that episode. That was a, when I found out that he wasn't able to be on that episode. That was a devastating blow for me devastating. It is very hard to describe. Even I would say, I would even hazard to Doctor Who fans to say how, to some Doctor Who fans certainly, um, how much of a blow emotionally that was for me. Um, as a fan of the character, and also in a way, um, someone who, from what I have heard of the man, the actor Nicholas Courtney, someone who from afar admires uh, his goodness, 
and appreciates his character and his kindness and niceness, at the least his niceness to others. Nicholas Corny himself in, a, in an interview in 2004 commented upon how he really enjoyed working with all the doctors. And the interviewer asked him, was it an immediate rapport that you had with John Pertwee? Did it take some time to develop? He said, yes, it took a little bit of time. Um, he was always polite, but um, it took maybe two or so stories to get to know John, says Nicholas Courtney. But but eventually we did, and then the interview the interviewer asks him, was there, was there a particular turning point where you realized that John Pertwee had got to know you? and was now you we were becoming friends. He says, yes, yes, well, we were riding in a car uh, and practicing our lines, rehearsing f um, a scene for Inferno. And uh, John Pertwee, as Nicholas Courtney says, was sitting in the front and turns around in his seat and says, very, just right directly to Nicholas Courtney, you are the nicest man that I've ever worked with in show business. And Nicholas Corny says that he almost had to hide a tear or something. It seems in real life Nicholas Corny was a very sensitive man and a very a very sweet man, a very kind man. People with with abundance have commented upon that. It's a very good thing to know that 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 such qualities radiate on the screen across decades. I I was privileged to be on a a memorial panel for Nicholas Corny. Um, one year after his death at Gallifrey, the Gallifrey One Convention in 2012, and the, the moderator of that panel was Simon Garrier, who um, fans of Big Finish audios will recognize his name as the writer of a, a prolific writer for Big Finish. And Simon said a lot of wonderful things. One thing he said was, there are many Brigadier-style characters before, during, and after Nicholas Courtney's time in Doctor Who. So it's not so much that the character is unique or different from other types of characters, be they military or civilian or scientific or working, class, any type of person. The character is not unique. What makes the qualities of the character unique so much is, is all, as, Nic as Simon Gary said, that this is all Nicholas Courtney. So the man was unique. And this is perhaps the, the core of my appreciation of the character of the Brigadier. My absolute firm commitment to my enjoyment of him as the best supporting character in all Doctor Who. And in my opinion, in any, in any other story. I look for characters like the Brigadier uh, in, li in literature. To, on, honestly, in, in, when I watch, read a book, or you would, you usually you read a book, or sometimes listen to an audio adventure, that often is in Doctor Who, but if I'm reading a book, and I find a kindly character, at this point it would, it would tend to be, um, because in, now in my mind the Brigadier is, or at least, yeah, well, Nicholas Courtney is always now in my mind an older man. Um... If there is ever an elderly man in a book that's a very kindly person and a, a kind of an authority figure or a gentle a gentleman, I picture Nicholas Courtney. Um, and I always will. I will say briefly what I said before that about the wedding of Riversong, excuse me, the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, that there are three inflection points for me in recent years of 
of my experience in, as a Doctor Who fan, and they involve the Brigadier, and they're sadly three sad points, which are the wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, the wedding of Riversong, and Death in Heaven. The wedding of Sarah Jane Smith, they have already discussed, that was because Nicholas Courtney would have appeared in that story, but wasn't able to appear because of health. It was no one's fault, but it was a devastating blow. The wedding of Riversong was another devastating blow, perhaps not quite as strong, because it was expected, and this was um, the in-universe, uh, the report of the character's death of the, of the Brigadier to the Eleventh Doctor. Um, I felt it was a sweet thing to do. I felt it was perhaps a little <laughs> too close, close to home, close to real life, because of the nature of the Brigadier's death was that he was always waiting for the Doctor to come and visit him, but apparently he never did, at least as far as we know before his death, which was very sad. And perhaps, as some people have said that I know, Stephen Moffat's own commentary on, on the fact that Doctor Who never brought back Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier in the new series. They bring him back in the Sarah Jane Adventures, which is part of the new series, but not the main parent television program. And that may have been Stephen Moffat's commentary saying, that's our fault. It's not, And you could argue maybe it's no one's fault, but if someone has to take responsibility, that may have been Stephen Moffat's way of saying that's our, that, that was our fault and uh, we should have brought him back. I understand there were efforts to bring him back and perhaps Nicholas Courtney's health wasn't up to it at the time, but but still, if you have to say this should have happened you're certainly not going to say it's Nicholas Courtney's fault. No. The third inflection point is death in heaven and I don't want to dwell on this one too much. It's very sad for me, but when Nicholas Courtney is unavailable to appear as the Brigadier, but you really want the Brigadier to return, I can understand why Stephen Moffat found a way to bring him back um, one last time. But as a Cyberman, it was um, it was too close for, to home for me in the wedding of Riversong, but I understood. I understood why he did it, and I, I could appreciate it. it was, I, could, I could understand the sweetness. The appearance of the Brigadier in Death in Heaven was far too bitter of an experience. And I have not talked to anybody amongst my friends or other fans that have seen that episode that can say that was, it was so good to see the Brigadier back. Pretty much everyone says that was, that was an awful moment. I'm not angry with Stephen Moffat for doing it. it. There's almost a sense of what else can you do. However, I, having said that, I would argue that there was another way to do it, um, which would have been actually fairly fairly simple. In my mind, one way that you, he could have done it to show the Brigadier's return is show Kate Kate Stewart, Kate the Brigadier's daughter, alive. She's exactly as you see on screen. She's talking about her father, and then the Doctor looks off into the distance, and then instead of seeing from his perspective, the the Cyberman which is implied to be the Brigadier, you see from the Brigadier's perspective. And to show that there's someone there, maybe you see someone's shoulder, and you see maybe a uh, unit uniform, or maybe you see, as the Brigadier was in the Sarah Jane Adventures, a tweed. And sometimes in Doctor uh, his shoulder, with the tweed um, uh, jacket, which is fairly associated with the Brigadier in his later years. And maybe the flat cap. Someone enough from behind, you see maybe the beard, or maybe you see the white hair and the flat cap and the shoulder. Someone from behind, and then you see the salute. And it leaves it very ambiguous, so you know this is the brigadier. You see back, what, how is he there? But then you see, you never see his face, but he turns away. 
and leaves, and you see him walking away into the distance. That would have been lovely. That would have broken my heart. But in a, one, in a very sweet way. But what Moffat did, I understand why he did it, because it fits with the story, but it was such a bitter moment, because as, as, as much as I enjoy Moffat, one of my friends said it this way, it was a well-intentioned moment, but perhaps was a moment where the, Moffat didn't consider the the implications of what he, he was doing and how he decided to do it. And there I agree. And so in my mind, I don't think that the Brigadier is ultimately a Cyberman. I refuse to believe this. I refuse. Especially when you find in the later books of the spin-off media that the, that particular Cyberman self-destructed like all the others. <sighs> I refuse to believe that the final fate of the Brigadier is, is as a ghost in the machine. Um, I will mention one other point before I move on to the next question uh, to end on a, on a, on a brighter note. Um, I will say one thing that um, just as a final thought to show how much I care about the Brigadier and how much I think about him as a, a and his na- his presence in the story going so far back across the, the tapestry of Doctor Who. Um, I very much like that the Brigadier um, has a family member who appears in Twice Upon a Time. It was a good thing to give both, therefore by extension, both the First Doctor and the Twelfth Doctor a story with um, not with the Brigadier, but with the Lethbridge-Stewart family and an ancestor of the Brigadier. Never stated on screen, of course, but uh, the apparently the intention is that Archibald Hamish Lethbridge Stewart is um, is the Brigadier's grandfather. Um, I have the perhaps I don't know if it's unpopular, but I am of the opinion that that, that um, Archibald Hamish is in fact the Brigadier's father. And uh, my I have no evidence for this, but in in, in in for me it makes more sense in a thematic way, which is that one. Archibald is when the captain, as we want to call him, maybe when the captain is um, scanned by testimony, and it says there is a timeline error. I like to think to myself, if the brigadier's grandfather was meant to die on that day, Christmas, nineteen fourteen, and he, as he indicates, he has apparently sons. Um. Why would there be a timeline error? Why would the death of, of this of this man, although sad as it would be, if it were in real life, why would that cause a timeline error? I'm sure there might be another reason, maybe to do with the TARDIS and such. But strictly speaking, why would it, there be a timeline error if that he's meant to die on that day and he already has sons? And one could say, well, maybe the son that he would eventually have, who would become the Brigadier's father, hadn't been born yet. That's possible, but if one assumes that the Brigadier was born in 1929, 1930, like Nicholas Courtney, then it's uh, it's a little hard to believe that the Brigadier's father... It's not impossible, I suppose, but it's a little hard to believe. A little hard, harder to believe that the Brigadier's father um, would be um, an offspring of, of Archibald and therefore have... How do I say this? Um... Yeah, because he would have to be born at the earliest in 1915. 
uh, and therefore be only, what, 13, 14 years old when he fathers his, his child? It's, again, it's not impossible, but I think it's highly unlikely. And so for that reason, I like to think to myself that the brigadier's father is Archibald. Um, and I also say that because, as shown by the intentions of Barry Letts and such, the brigadier is a World War II veteran, as shown in, in the novel Deadly Reunion, and I'm sure there were some other stories as well. Yes, um, never stated on screen, but... Um, I can't remember which story it was. Uh, it may have—I think it may have been Rem *Remembrance of the Daleks*. But I think there was a unit era story. I'd have, I'll have to look it up. It's rather obscure, but I know that there was a reference to the Brigadier serving in World War II that was in a script that was ultimately cut—a television script. But the intention clearly was at the time that he was a World War II soldier. And some people have said, "Oh, well, he's—he's he's not uh, old enough to be a World War II soldier." The difference in age between someone. Nicholas Courtney's age and someone that would be a World War II veteran is only about, really about a year or two. And in my mind, um, he is only about f five or so years older. I've said this before, I like to think the Brigadier was born on the 8th of June, 1924, like my grandfather. That's just me. But um, being a World War II veteran, that would make him young enough <laughs> or old enough, in my opinion, to be the son of Archibald. And in really honesty, it just makes better thematic sense. If these later doctors had met the brigadier's daughter, they might as well meet his father. Um, that's just my fan theory. I have already spoken quite a lot about my favorite companion, but as I said, I warn people, I can talk about the brigadier forever. I will end on one last um, happy note, which is that um, I have, as, I'm, as I have written the final game, um, which is a tribute to Roger Delgado and John Pertwee, starting more so Roger Delgado, but with John Pertwee as well, um, I have a project in the works which will be a nice tribute to Nicholas Courtney and the Brigadier. And when, when it is ultimately finished... I, I hope that I am not too um, bold in my assertion that it will be something that will change how fans uh, see the Brigadier and, uh, and enjoy the character. It is, it is something very special that was a joy to, uh, to begin and to uh, uh, complete in the near future. Hello, my name's Lee Rawlings. I play Sam Jackson in the final game. So my favourite companion is uh, well, Liz Sladen, obviously, uh, Sarah Jane Smith. You know, she's got that sort of typical thing that companions do, which is get lost, get incarcerated, get hypnotised, all that sort of thing. But there was also a very strong element to her character as well. And she would stand up to the Doctor, and she had her own mind. And she was perfectly played by Liz Sladen. There's, you know, there is a reason that um, she came back to do her own series. Okay, so these are my answers for the Final Game Confidential, Part 5. So, my favorite companions, <laughs> I cannot narrow it down to just one. I love every single one of them for different reasons. There's, um... So, I'm probably going to have to go with the top three. And these are a top three that are going to change pretty much time to time. Because, again, I love them all. There's something about every single person who's played a companion that I just... So, I, I love something about. 
So, one of my top three is coming in a little bit controversially, but Turlo. I love Turlo. I love what Mark Strickson did with the part. I love the fact that in a time of the show where you kind of felt a little bit one-dimensional at, at points, um, not wholly, but I feel like some of the stories began to get a little bit more one-dimensional than they had been before. I love that you you, you get Turlo, who is a very morally gray character to begin with. I mean, he literally starts off attempting to murder Doctor Who. You'd, you would never get a companion trying to do that um, in almost any other period of the show. And I love how he grows out of his fear and out of his anxieties and so forth and out of his, his wish to get his old life back. And he becomes a person who deals with situations as they come. Instead of pining for what he doesn't have, he's a hero for who is present in his life with him. And that's a really great thing. And again, Mark Strickson plays him so good. He plays him so well. Um, I love Turlo. Uh, number two on my top three list right now is going to have to go to... Hmm... Number two on my list of favorite companions is, I'm going to have to say, that's probably Bill Potts. She's one of my all-time favorite characters in all of Who canon. I I love the way that Pearl plays her. She's so believable. There's never really a point where you think, oh yeah, that's Pearl playing Bill. It's just, that's Bill. That is a living, breathing character with hopes and dreams and desires and fears. And she she's a fully fleshed out person. She has everything that you would want a person to be. She's not a cardboard cutout. And a lot of that has to do with how Pearl plays her. And I also love love uh, Bill because she is... She's one of the characters that I can relate to the most in a lot of ways. Um, not least of which because <laughs> it's... I love the way that she takes on the universe full-handed. Like, she doesn't understand how all of these strange things work. She doesn't always comprehend why things happen the way they do, but she deals with it as it comes to her. I love the, the, um, the representation she's able to bring to the show. That as a openly lesbian character, she's able to finally unequivocally tell the audience that this is up for people in the world. As much as, as people may try and tell that um, up there and say, you do belong. You are beautiful and you are perfect and you are who for a reason. Nothing can change that. Nothing can take that away. You're beautiful. That's, and, I'm, and I know I'm not wording that perfectly great, but I hope you get the center I'm trying. I'm trying to go forward with that. Um, and number three on my list of, of top three favorite companions, gotta go to Liz, Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane. She is the textbook standard for what a companion should be. She is strong and she's independent. She is, again, her own character. You you never really think, oh yeah, hey, there's there's uh, Liz Sladen playing Sarah Jane. No, it's she's Sarah Jane. We know who she is. We know her wants and her desires, and we know how she addresses situations. I, I love how she grows over her time on the show, too. Like, beginning as a very... Uh, there's a word, and I can't think of it. 
she's a very skeptical person to begin with. A reporter who doesn't believe that Doctor Who is who Doctor Who says that Doctor Who is. She doesn't believe that time travel is real or that aliens exist and so forth. And it, she, like Bill, ends up taking it in her stride. She doesn't get how it works, but she knows it's true. And she just pushes forward. And she deals with it as herself. She doesn't become like a... Um, a Again, there's a word and I'm not thinking of it. She doesn't become a cut-out version of a companion. She doesn't become a trope, I guess is what I'm trying to say. She doesn't respond to crises and events and so forth in a way that anyone else would. She responds to it like Sarah Jane would. And that's what makes her such a relatable and such an enjoyable character to watch. What makes a good companion? Well, again, I think it's a a combination of the things that I mentioned uh, in the previous companions that I talked about. They have to be, to a certain extent, the voice of the audience. So they do have to ask the doctor, what's this for? What's happening? Why are we doing this? Etc. And they do have to do the role of getting lost, getting caught, uh, getting into trouble, things like that, to kind of give the doctor someone to play off and uh, to push the story forward. But I do like companions that um, aren't afraid to tell the doctor he's wrong. Um, Donna Noble did a lot of that. Um, I like companions that do have a bit more depth to them. So they do have skills and they can um, cope with some of the situations without needing the doctor constantly. Um, Again, Clara was very quick witted on her feet and confident with things like that. So I think that makes a good companion. Um, in some ways, uh, the companion needs to click with the Doctor. Not completely, as again, they don't need to be subservient, but at the same time, they do need to sort of get along with the Doctor, but at the same time, slightly push him in the right direction or encourage him when he needs to do certain things, and also act like his conscience. So I guess that, that kind of leads into the question about what makes a good companion. I, <laughs> Like I said before, in, in my list of great companions... One of the things that draws me to the ones that I like like the most are their relatability and how much they feel like a real, actual person. Because I think one of the things that I enjoy most about Doctor Who, the show, is how it takes the natural and the real and it transforms it into the unnatural and the unknown and the fantastic. So you have a collision of everyday life with monsters and aliens and fantastical situations you'd never actually find. So for a good companion, you need to have someone who is relatable and grounded from or at least acts as someone you know would act. They don't necessarily have to be from 21st century Earth or whatever, but they as a person feel like someone you could know, someone you could be friends with or someone you could work with or, you know, whatever. They have to have that grounded element, but they also have to be able to adapt to the fantastical and to the unknown that they're going to be exposed to on their travels. That's, in my mind, what makes a great companion, is that fusion of the natural and the unnatural. 
My first companion, again, was Elizabeth Sladen, uh, just about, but then it was more Leela, I suppose. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I remember Sarah Jane Smith, but I think I fell in love with Sarah Jane Smith more as I got older, actually. But uh, Leela, I, I suppose, was my first companion, and I really love Leela as well. I, I think Louise Jameson is an absolute superb actress, one of my favourites, actually. So they're definitely my top three. So, the second question that Mark gave me is, which is or are your first companion or companions? Um, and that's a much easier and simpler uh, for me. Um, I think the first companions I ever saw, because I think the first television story for Doctor Who that I ever saw was the War Games. That would be, uh, those would be Jamie and, and Zoe. But I was so young watching the War Games, I don't think I really understood what it was beyond a black-and-white television science fiction story. And therefore, the first companion for me that would have connection weight in my memory is Liz Shaw. Um, because the first stories that I saw that I can... after the War Games, where I was really connecting this as a, as a cohesive unit of a television story, Doctor Who, were John Pertwee's first season. And I... Um, I remember watching those episodes and seeing the third Doctor and seeing Liz, not knowing any, not much else, just accepting them as the main hero and his his companion, his sidekick, so to speak, his assistant. Liz Shaw as a companion in in the in later years, in rewatching the episodes and having. Uh, the opportunity to compare her to other companions after and before her. Many more after, of course. I can see, as I and I've said this before, that how how um, future-timed Liz Shaw is as a character. She is a, an extremely accomplished scientist and and intellect. Uh, intellectual and investigator and thinker to such an extent that she you could almost argue belongs in another story because she is a strong enough character on her own to be the lead investigator, the lead scientist the lead thinker um, and she's going back to 1969 some people have commented upon, and I have commented upon, the um, the qualities of Sarah Jane Smith being ahead of her time as a as a, uh, a liberated woman uh, of the mid 1970s. Well, if she was ahead of her time, um, then Liz Shaw was before the curve, <laughs> before the curve was 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 mapped, um, because she's a full half decade before Sarah Jane Smith. The uh, opposite end of, of the same Doctor's era. It's very interesting. She's a very interesting character because she comes from from the Barry Letts era, yes, but she comes from the opening act of the Barry Letts, Terrence Dicks era, and therefore she's not a creation of those of that team. She comes from the Derek Sherwin Peter Bryant um, era of Doctor Who, meaning the tail end of the, the Troughton years. She's not a Troughton companion, but those were the stories that they had commissioned and prepared, and even produced. Remember, Derek Sherwin produced uh, Spearhead from Space. 
the one story, just like Robot for the fourth Doctor that was not produced by that Doctor's first producer. Philip Hinchcliffe for the fourth Doctor, Barry Letts for the third Doctor. There was a bit of an overlap. The irony for those stories is that everyone associates Barry Letts with the third Doctor, and many fans that I've known associate the best of the Pertwee era with... Um, with season seven, Pertwee's first year, and yet those stories are not stories that Barry Letts would have cho- necessarily chosen because he didn't choose them. He had, he was bound to uh, produce them. And again, the first of those stories, those four stories, he didn't even produce. They have a different feel. Um, and yet they are very good. And Liz Shaw is a part of that era. Um... And for those reasons, I am. It's I consider it one of the the biggest lost opportunities of, and missed missed opportunities. Certainly, I would say of of Doctor Who not to have kept Liz um, forward beyond um, series seven, season seven of Doctor Who. I understand that again that Barry Letts wanted to probably put his own stamp on the series, and apparently he felt that um, Liz Shaw as a character wasn't working or part of his vision. I understand this. And because of that, we get Katie Manning as Joe Grant, and then eventually um, uh, Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith. Certainly as a consequence of Caroline John leaving Doctor Who, we have Katie Manning as Joe Grant, which is wonderful. Um, and therefore she and Sarah Jane are some of my earliest companions as well, but first, in terms of one that I would understand, would be Liz Shaw. And... I think it's a, it's a, not a necessarily tragedy, but maybe close, that Liz Shaw only lasted as long as she did. Because she is, um, she's a, she's a very, in certain ways, almost a powerful woman. In that she's not someone that's ever pushed around, she's not someone who's ever seems frightened too much. And if she is frightened, you know it is something Horrific. I think the best example of a frightened Liz Shaw is in the Ambassadors of, Ambassadors of Death Part um, uh, Part Six, um, when the when she is alone with the alien ambassadors, delivering the um, radiation rods for their sustenance, and all at once they surround her, and one of them removes its helmet, and we briefly see what the alien looks like. It's a wonderfully directed scene, very, very, very tense. In fact, I would say even intense, because the way it's filmed, it doesn't go over the top or overboard in terms of giving it a kind of a, a, an in-the-moment surreal quality, but it, the camera movements are such that it, the camera slowly starts to um, approach Liz's face, and then it, it, in these little jump-cut moments, it gets closer and closer and closer. Not smoothly, but jump, jump, jump. And we just see her shocked appearance. And then in, again, jump cuts, we see, I think, three or four, like, millisecond images of the um, alien, the alien ambassador. The point where you have to pause the screen to get a clear look, but, but that's the point. It's something so horrific that it has made this woman, this scientist who has seen aliens at this point, who has... Um, training in, in many things, including medical training. So she, she will have, you know, dissected corpses, she will have dissect, dissected or um, um, operated upon living people. She will have seen blood, she will have seen organs, she will have seen the stuff of life, and therefore the, also the stuff of death. 
and she is frightened. And she has her moment. But there she doesn't scream. And that's the very cool thing about Liz Shaw. She doesn't scream. She, she yells. She says, let me out, let me out of here. And she's quite scared and shaken. Um, but it shows a testament of the, the strength of the character and the acting of, of Carolyn John. Um, that she doesn't, uh, that she doesn't scream. It's a lot like Leela in later years, um, and the quality of the acting that, uh, Louis Jameson gave to that character. I would say that if there's any character, um, that is an inheritor, that has the inheritance of Liz Shaw, to a certain extent, yes, it's Sarah Jane Smith, because she has that same kind of, um, working woman, and, and working, and, 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 self-sufficient woman, a, quality, a self-sufficient quality that, that uh, as a woman, that uh, Liz Shaw had. But, but th- that, that um, fearless quality, you see it in, um, in Leela, that was in Liz. I believe there's a story, I believe it's the Robots of Death. Um, I believe... I, God, I'd have to look it up, but there was a, I know there was a scene where uh, Leela is overpowered by... Um, Oh, maybe actually it was Underworld. <laughs> I, I have to check it. But one, in one of Leela's stories, uh, the direction was that Leela would be overpowered by, I believe, a, a poisonous gas, and that Leela is supposed to scream. But Carol, um, she, but uh, Louise Jameson objected and said, and that's, that is outside of, of uh, Leela's character. And um, and therefore, and she won the day. That was it was removed. Leela doesn't scream. Well, Liz Shaw doesn't scream. Liz Shaw doesn't scream. She, uh, she even has a scene in that same story in Bastards of Death where she gets to drive Bessie and has her, her own car chase sequence. She's a very, um, like almost like an anti, I don't want to say anti-Bond girl, because if Doctor Who was very, of that time was very much in the mold of Bond, James Bond films. That wasn't a pun try, saying Bond, James Bond, I just tried to get the whole name out. Um, I don't want to say anti-Bond girl. Because if, if the Doctor is James Bond, then therefore Liz Shaw is a quote-unquote Bond girl. She's a who girl. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds t- a little silly. Huh? But but oftentimes, sadly, in this stereotypical sense that the Bond girls are, are there for simply their looks and not their personality or their, their intellect. I suppose you could say that maybe Liz Shaw is therefore, in a way, an anti-Bond girl and that she is she's a beautiful woman. Carolyn John was a beautiful woman and and I think in real life a very sweet woman. Um, and Liz Shaw is a beautiful woman herself. But uh, but there's that wonderful comment, and uh, again, tying back to the, the Brigadier, in Spearhead from Space, when General Scobie comes and visits Union HQ, and Liz is inside the lab doing some experiments, and he says, oh, look, you left Stuart having a pretty face around the place. And the Brigadier says, she's not just a pretty face, uh, sir. No, she wasn't. She was a pretty face. She had a beautiful face. But she had, the character, a powerful mind. Um, and therefore she is known for her intellect. And apparently her ever-changing hairstyle. She has, uh, she has a different hairstyle uh, in, in, in almost all of her stories. I think she has pretty much the same hairstyle in Ambassadors of Death and Inferno. But vastly different hairstyles in the previous stories. So her first three stories certainly have very different hairstyles. And I like that, because I, I like it, in my mind, I like it to show maybe the passing of some time. It's not just the next day for her, but that she's actually with the Doctor for a while. I like it that she's 
that the books and the audios in later years since then have have shown that the Doctor will come and visit Liz sometimes. It's even implied, I think, in the last post, which was Carolyn John's last uh, performed story as Liz Shaw, that, um, well, excuse me, not the last post, I think, actually, Sentinels of the New Dawn, excuse me, one of her last, that uh, the Doctor would come and visit Liz Shaw in the early days, at least, when maybe he might, and I might be misunderstanding this, but I think... Liz says that the Doctor doesn't seem to be too fond yet of, of Joe Grant. I'm sure that he is, but maybe there is a, you get the sense, the implications, that when the Doctor needs more purely scientific intellectual company, and Joe is not a foolish girl, she's not a dumb girl, not at all, no, but she's, she's, not, a, uh, she's not an intellectual, she's not a scientist. Um, she's a, she is more, you could argue, more warm, more feminine than a typically feminine, maybe, than, than Liz Shaw is. But Joe is certainly not a scientist. Liz Shaw is. Liz is a scientist, and therefore, if the Doctor ever needs that type of company or that type of camaraderie, he will visit Liz. So Liz is not out of his life after she left. She's still around on Earth, and then present-day Earth, working at Cambridge, or working in other places, I'm sure, but certainly Cambridge, and the Doctor will visit her from time to time. And, of course now played by Carolyn John's daughter Daisy Ashford. Uh, Liz Shaw returns recently in the audio Prime Ward, where she meets uh, Joe Grant. So this is just the sense that that, um, the, that Liz Shaw is still around. I think that's wonderful. Because, as I said, I think it's a, one of the worst, or the biggest missed opportunities in Doctor Who, that Liz Shaw was around for only one year, one series, and then disappeared. Uh, I think it's a testament to the character. You know, you know the, of course, they brought her back a little. She appears in The Five Doctors. She appears, well, a version of her at least, but uh, she appears in Dimensions in Time. But I think it's a testament to the power of the character that she, um, Carolyn John as Liz Shaw, got to headline and star in the first spin-off of Doctor Who ever, which is the Probe series from the mid-1990s. So long before Torchwood or the Sarah Jane Adventures or or Class or something, or any K-9, you had Probe, you had Liz Shaw. Four television, well, not television stories, but uh, direct-to-video, then video, now probably would be DVD, um, adventures, feature-length adventures, where Liz is part of a, a very, very, very small-staffed, probably underfunded government agency called Probe. Uh, what's the name? The Preternatural Research Bureau, um, something like that. I'd have to look it up. Um, and I will look it up, because I don't want to, because I very much enjoy Liz Shaw, and I don't want to just ignore what, she, what parts of her character. Here we go. Probe, film series. Probe stands for, um, what does it stand for? Hmm, never mind there. Uh, just a moment. Probe. The Preternatural Research Research Bureau. I was right. I thought there was something else. But, um... Um... It's the whole idea of Liz being, um... Funded by the government and, and working for the government. Doing similar things than what UNIT's doing. But probably with a little more, um... Um... Uh, government oversight. I should note, 
I just found this out a few days ago that um, the Probe series, which was very active, like I said, in the mid-90s, um, and then briefly had a revival about five years ago with Liz Shaw, but of course five years ago Carolyn John was dead because she died eight years ago. You had an actress named Hazel Burroughs take the role of Liz Shaw in this story called When to Die as a tribute to Carolyn John's character. And what I found out a few days ago was that uh, the Probe series has been revived uh, with webcast um, animations. They've just started this year. A story called Shadows of Doubt. Um, a webcast story, and then there's another story called The Door We Forgot, which looks to be kind of a more of a web comic. So I think it's very nice but that uh, the Probe series is continuing. However, um, so it's a rather, I'll be honest, it's a rather obscure corner of Doctor Who, uh, because it's something that was never on television and comes from the Wilderness Years, but it was sustained. It wasn't just one story. You had lots of um, Wilderness Years Doctor Who-based projects, but this was the one that was sustained. You had four stories, and more recently a fifth, and now more. Uh, however, it would appear that the character of Liz Shaw in these new adventures is not around. But it shows the the, the, the power of, of Liz Shaw in that because she was the central character and had that hook to bring people into the to watch the stories, um, uh, there is a the spin-off continues. Even now, nearly a decade after Carolyn John's death, and uh, it's 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 wonderful. And so I'm glad that you could argue perhaps too late, but perhaps too late certainly for Carolyn John, but not too late for her really. Um, Liz Shaw's getting her due. Um, in a small way, which is that she has an established legacy of something that's continuing. But because Liz Shaw was one of my first companions, really my first companion, I um, I was happy to include her in the final game. Uh, simply because I felt that, as a celebration of the Pertwee years, you really need Liz Shaw around. And um, and again, I felt that that the Doctor could use a scientist on his side alongside a journalist in this big adventure with the unit. And again, it, I, as I said before, I felt that um, I wanted to acknowledge that Liz Shaw is around uh, still. She hasn't disappeared. If, I, if you treat Doctor Who not as a television series but as a fictional world, she's still within that world, certainly in the 1970s. And it was a lot of fun. It has been a wonderful fun. So I want to again thank Denise Sutton for um, recreating and reviving in our story uh, the character of Liz Shaw and bringing that s those same strong qualities. She's not a screamer. And especially in, in I love it in her, in her performances. Uh, Denise's performance when facing things like the Ogrons or or some of the other monsters. She doesn't scream her lines. Brigadier, look out! Or something like that. She says, Brigadier, look behind you. Because Liz Shaw is not going to scream. She's not going to get scared. She's going to notice, oh, there's a there's a large simian creature. It's an ogron. I know the name now. Brigadier, behind you. But she's going to say it with that strength because she is a very uh, much a woman in control of her of herself and her emotions, and she knows her intellect and strength. It's wonderful. Uh, wonderful character. I hope that we see her again, in the, you know, continuing into the future. Um, the last question. At least for the uh, for, in, for the companions that Mark has given me is what makes a good companion. 
I think you could see from the statements that I've made about um, the Brigadier and Liz Shaw and some of the others um, that, in my opinion, what makes a good companion is the strength of their character. The strength of his or her character. Um, the feeling that you are dealing, whatever their personality is, they don't have to be the flashiest of personalities or the or the even the strongest necessary personalities, meaning strong meaning largest, I should say largest of personalities. They can be rather understated or subtle or reserved. But the strength of the personality. So yes, well I will qualify this by saying that they should be the strongest of personalities, but not necessarily the largest of personalities. We think of strong personalities sometimes in these days being large personalities. You don't have to have a large personality to be strong. Uh, some of the people that I know that are the strongest people I've, that I know are quite calm, quiet, dignified people. A large personality can be dignified also, but uh, sometimes very small, simple personalities can have a, our treasure troves of dignity and strength. So in my opinion, it is that you feel like they are a real person, a real strong person that uh, is reliable is, and, and uh, at their, his or her core is good. Um and is capable. And sometimes you can have these personalities amongst companions that are not always necessarily, you could argue, obviously good. The struggle is there. The struggle is real. I'm thinking of like Cholo from, you know, the Fifth Doctor's era. You could argue throughout he was, was, was he ever a good person, a, a fundamentally good person. Who knows? But he was ultimately someone that chose to be good and chose to make the right decisions. Is he necessarily a hero? No, not necessarily. But he is someone who is... And is he a kind person? Probably not. Not really. But there is something likable about him. At the least, if you can understand... If you have, they have the style to match some interesting substance. This makes That's one element also that can make the companion good. But in the end, of course, Toto chooses to do right. You see this in Enlightenment. You see it throughout other stories. Um, it's a subtle kindness. A subtle reliability that Mark Strickton plays with such strength and such uh, uh, complexity. Um, sometimes the com what makes a good companion is their otherworldliness. I think of Nyssa. Um, she's not human. She looks human, but she's not. She's from Trocan. She's a Trocanite. And she's lost her world. And she has, at least some of the early stories, very interesting abilities. Psychic abilities and such expanded later in the audios as perhaps a mutation by a progenitor of her race, so to speak. Quandar, from the audio Primeval. He's a primeval being, which I think is probably the same thing as an old one. Um, but it's never quite ex um, explained. But even so, all these little qualities is something like Nyssa has. Very truthfully, one of the stories that affected me the most... Uh, growing up was Time Flight. I really enjoyed Time Flight. But one thing that really affected me was Sarah Sutton's performance in the story where she is being connected to the uh, to the Xerophon. And how she portrays kind of this, this more um, ethereal Nyssa was something very... I don't know. It really affected me because I thought... It, 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 it almost seemed for a brief moment like you had... The, in in this uh, almost like a different form of woman, a different form of of, of mystery, a, a different form of femininity, that was quite beautiful, and quite 
quite memorable in, in that moment. So something where you, where the, the character brings you a memory and leaves you with an impression. Um, these days, um, one of the, um, well, I would say at this point, the, the, uh, the character that seems to be the ultimate companion, at least for current fans, is Sarah Jane Smith. Certainly for many of the actors who worked with her uh, in, in the new series. And I would say probably more so in the new series, because those that worked with her in the original series, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in the classic series, they have wonderful things to say about her, but they were, in a way, peers. They were all had come together roughly at the same time. I'm talking about her and Tom Baker, Ian Martin and such. They all came together. Of course, Ian Martin, uh, Ian Martyr, excuse me, uh, died long before Elizabeth Sladen. So we have less contemporary or more closer to, to our time material with him speaking about Elizabeth Sladen. We have much more about her, you know, before her death, speaking about him. Or Nicholas Courtney speaking about him and such. Um, but by the time you get to the new series, Elizabeth Sladen is much more of a, there's a more legendary f figure to her. And so those that speak about her, speak about her kindly, but also with a definite reverence. A definite reverence in the sense of how, how good of a person she was and how strong of a character she embodied. Because this is a, this is Sarah Jane of the new series, who's, who is a bit different from Sarah Jane of the classic series. It's just, she's more solidified, more experienced, less easily frightened. And she wasn't so much easily frightened in the original classic era, but um, she, like Liz Shaw was right from the start, Sarah Jane becomes a, uh, a very strong figure that's not easily shaken at the end. She was not... She was capable of being shaken and, and screaming in the classic era. You don't hear her... You don't really associate too much screaming except with Sarah Jane, except perhaps in Journey's End when she's cornered by the Daleks and she starts screaming, saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And rightfully so, in my opinion. As much as I love R2D's writing, rightfully so, some people commented and said, that seems out of character for Sarah Jane to hide her eyes and scream. Not to cry, of course, when she finds out about the Daleks coming, because there is that sense of, we are doomed. That's... Because and, and, now she's a mother. But when she's on her own, and she's cornered by the Daleks, she starts saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and screaming. Even I will agree there. That I, I'm not sure if that's really Sarah Jane's best at the moment, because I don't think it really fit the character. It may have fit her in the classic era, but not necessarily in the new series era. That sense of the perfection of a person. I'm not saying that Sarah Jane is a perfect person. What I'm saying is that the, perf the progression and perfection of a person's s character, you really see that in Sarah Jane across the years. And we are blessed, I think, to not only to have seen her in the 70s, uh, but also sampled in most other decades, at least, you know, between the 70s and her death. We see her in the 70s, of course, in the classic era. The 80s, thanks to the Five Doctors. The 90s, thanks to Downtime. The 2000s, thanks to School Reunion and, and the Sarah Jane Adventures, and even edging into the 10s with the end of the Sarah Jane Adventures, um, with the last stories being filmed in 2010 and airing in 2011. Um, what makes Sarah Jane perhaps so strong is that we see, I think, a lot of the elements of a good companion instilled within her, and then uh, progress and strengthen over the years. You've seen in other companions, too, of course, even before Sarah Jane, even before Liz, someone like Zoe, Zoe Harriet. 
one of her best moments, I think, is in The Mind Robber, where she faces the Kraken. And, and Monday uh, Padbury is a very small woman, very tiny, very short, and very small. And she's facing the Kraken, who's played by Christopher uh, Robin, who was quite a big, tall guy. Well over six feet tall. I mean, he plays the cyber controller, excuse me, cyber leader in, um, in The Revenge of the Cybermen, and he's taller than Tom Baker. And Tom Baker's six foot three. So it gives you a sense that this man's, who knows how tall, but he's probably at least six foot four, maybe more, probably more. So, this rather large man facing this very diminutive elfish uh, Zoe, and <laughs> kudos and props to Wendy Padbury. She does all these wonderful, she does her own stunts. She does these wonderful crazy tumbles and kicks and, and martial arts moves, you know, and I don't know if they're actual martial arts moves, but whatever she's doing is very believable, and it shocks you the first time I ever saw it. She faces this crocodile, and she doesn't scream and cower. She goes, all right, and she's clearly scared, but she faces that fear. She faces that enemy. And it may not even be a fear. She just faces this foe, and she subdues him. <laughs> and she does it so well that in the moment you're shocked seeing it happen, but you, you, you aren't thinking your, your, your suspension of disbelief isn't, uh, doesn't become grounded. You don't think, oh, she can't do this. You think, oh, wow, she did it. Go, Zoe! <laughs> So, wonderful characters such as this. Someone that you can admire, or someone that you can um, find relatable, or likable, or understandable, real. What makes a good companion all those things and above. What makes a good man? What makes a good woman? What makes a good human being? Um, or, or at least, what makes a good person, an individual? Because not all the companions are uh, human. Not all are quote-unquote real, even canine, or chameleon, or in Death Comes to Time, if we count that, Antimony, the, uh, spoiler, <laughs> the Seventh Doctor's android companion. Wonderful characters that you, uh, that you, you get to know them, and you're sorry to see them go. And sometimes you're sorry that they go in the way that they go, because you want to see more of them, like Donna losing her memories, and therefore in a way losing her character development. She might be, in my opinion, the best improved character. I think she's enjoyable, definitely in the in the Runaway Bride, but but she is rather a very, you could argue, elements of her are a bit obnoxious, a bit very immature. And yet Donna Noble in Series 4 is, still has those immature moments, or those silly moments, but she's much improved because she's... And I think RTD did a, did a wonderful thing in her characterization. I believe that I've mentioned this before. She's taken stock of her life. Unlike a lot of companions who are sometimes meant to be teenagers or people in their 20s, Donna's someone probably more like in her 40s. Um, maybe in her later 30s, but probably more like 40 or something. And she takes stock of her life in between The Runaway Bride and Partners in Crime and probably is thinking, why didn't I go with the doctor? And, the, and maybe she needed that time to mature and realize... What have I done with my life? Who am I? And then she has a chance to travel with the doctor, and she makes most of it, and then she loses it all. To save her life, the doctor has to remove everything. Sometimes that's what makes a good companion, too. Their departure. And sometimes it's simple, and sometimes it's... Oh, I'm back in my own time. Oh, thank you. Sometimes the best of those situations, in terms of the drama, is the sorrow accompanied. Donna's one of the saddest. Um, Tegan is also quite sad, too, because she she departs in the face of horror in the story of Resurrection of the Daleks, in which some of our 
stated, I, I don't know myself, but some have stated that the that story, maybe even the first episode alone, has a higher body count, death count, than the, the, the first Terminator film. It is a very, there's a lot of violence in that story. People just gun down left and right. And in the end, no wonder that Tegan sees so much death, after seeing so much death already, but just seeing just total massacre. That she tells the doctor, I'm not, I'm not going with you. A lot of good people died today. I can't deal with this anymore. Even though as the doctor leaves, she says, Doctor, I will miss you. Because she doesn't think the doctor is necessarily violent. She just sees his lifestyle as fraught with violence, which it is. It's not the doctor's fault. It's the price that you pay for saving everyone. Because sometimes people die. It's their time. Um... Well, the answer is why do bad things happen to good people? Well, so that other good people will live sometimes. Maybe that's not always the answer, but sometimes it is. And it might not be good, but but it is real. And so, the note on which the character, the companion, appears, but then also sometimes disappears, or departs, is quite is quite sad. And sometimes they die, like Adric or Chameleon, or, or uh, Katerina, or, in the audios, Karis, or Lucy Miller... Um, I'm trying to think of others that have died. Bill Potts, I suppose, yes, but in a way not so much. Donna, to a certain extent, yes. They tricked us with Rose Tyler, but she doesn't die. I've always found it interesting that Rose, I will say this, and it's sometimes mystery to the companion, you know, like Amy or, or Clara, certainly the impossible girl, or their identity's the girl that waited. Um... Or Rose, I don't know if she has so much a title or anything, but but um, the bad wolf, of course. But mysteries, what are they? I can see even things now. What in the world was the bad wolf? <laughs> or why is it that when Rose dies at the end of series two, you get a sense of why she has to be in the parallel world, because the thought is that the Doctor can't travel between parallel worlds anymore. But then part four, series four, Journey's End, he does. And yet he takes her back. Why not have her and her family go back to their own world. For whatever reason, they stay in the parallel world. You could say, well, they've made their lives there. Yes, but Mickey Smith goes back to his own world. Why not, I wonder? Hmm. Well, I'm sure there's a story there. As I said before, I like to think that Rose is the moment. So maybe she's being contained for her own good. I don't know. Um, Sarah Jane, I, I think... I should note, note there when Sarah Jane di- uh, not died, but uh, when Sarah Jane um, departed back in the Hand of Fear, what was rather unique for a companion's departure, just showing how, how well she had become a beloved character even then in 1976, there were news stories of Sarah Jane's departure. And that news stories at that, t- at that point in Doctor Who, its history, tended to be reserved more for the Doctor's departure. But here we had a companion's departure in televised news, I, I mean... Not just like in the news, like, you know, for, like, newspapers, but I think on television there were televised news stories saying Elizabeth, Elizabeth Slayton is departing as Sarah Jean Smith in Doctor Who. Quite, uh, that was kind of a pioneering moment. It showed how... I think it, part of it was the... Because that, the Doctor was kind of at the height of its popularity. We're reaching it in, in British public consciousness at that time, culturally, and popularly. And, um, I think it shows that in another time it wouldn't have happened, but it's still still showed. Um, she maybe, maybe, maybe it just comes out of timing. All about timing. But it still showed the, the quality and the potency and the, and the beloved nature of the character of Sarah Jane Smith, of a companion. 
and a sense of loss, like, well, then we're, who, who's like us now? It's um, wonderful things to have companions in Doctor Who. All these things make a good person. And certainly I'll mention the Brigadier again. Uh, we st- I still long for a way to s- give a proper goodbye to Lethbridge Stewart. Maybe we'll get that chance one day. As for the Cybermen, um, the Cybermen are my favourite Doctor Who creatures of all time, and my favourite stories featuring the Cybermen, I would say Revenge of the Cybermen. That was probably one of the first Cybermen stories I ever saw. And although I love the design of them, looking back at it now, you can see it's a very sort of low-budget production, which is a shame, because as an eight-year-old, you know, I thought it was uh, good as Star Wars or whatever. But, you know, I love those Cybermen, and... I was happy to see them back in Earthshock uh, much later on in the 80s, but um, I think at the time I felt they were over-designed. You know, there was too many bits and pieces put on top of them. But, you know, looking at them now, I really do like the 80s look. When talking about the Cybermen, me and my friend Simon often say that the best Cyberman story hasn't been written. Uh, Up until, I think, the Peter Capaldi episodes. So those, I would say, are my favourite because they are so close to the original concept of what the Cybermen were supposed to be. I enjoy nearly all the Cybermen episodes, strangely, but I don't think they've been used to their full capability. So they they were kind of turned into metal monsters, robots and stomping armies, but not really the whole body horror thing, the whole what's the concept of changing into a Cyberman, what would that be like, you know, why did it happen... And uh, obviously there's the Big Finish um, uh, story, which I absolutely adore. I think it's the best Big Finish story next to uh, next to Jubilee, which was also obviously turned into a TV episode. It's so good. It was so atmospheric and such a great idea and very, very troubling to listen to, which is good. It had to be disturbing. And I think that the TV version pulled it off really well. And having the master involved actually was a, was a stroke of genius too. Normally, with these questions, there are usually groups of three. But uh, Mark very nicely gave um, a bonus question for this round. And his preamble says, plus as the master enslaves the Cybermen, which happens in part five, of course. Which is or are your favorite story or stories featuring the Silver Giants, meaning the Cybermen? Um... I really love the Cybermen. I've talked a lot about them um, in the last Confidential, being one of my favorite monsters, my second favorite monster, I think. Um, and sometimes my first favorite. You could argue, in certain ways. But in terms of stories... Um, oh, it's a very difficult one. Because you have so many times where the Cybermen are, to a certain extent, sometimes reinvented, sometimes reimagined, revised, redesigned, that there's often something that grabs you. Um, I really like the Tenth Planet, um, because it, of course, debuts the Cybermen. I really like, um, the Tomb of the Cybermen, uh, or the Invasion. Um, Wheel in Space, I I think, is a good story. Moonbase is a little harder. With those two, uh, certainly Wheel in Space, because a lot of their episodes are missing. You can still get a sense of it, but... You can still get a sense of the quality of those stories, of course, but well, some of the episodes are missing, and and therefore it's a different experience because a lot of the uh, Cybermen are off. Some of their, a lot of their footage is lost. In the case of the invasion, although two episodes are missing, um, they're in the earlier half of the story, and 
you don't you're not missing any footage of the Cybermen, even probably from part four because it's in the reprise for part five. So you get the full Cybermen experience in the invasion, whenever they feature. I really like the invasion, of course. Although in that case, you could definitely make the argument that the real villain there is Tobias Vaughn. Um, well, more than I mean, he's much more. The Cybermen themselves are a little more like the foot soldiers. The villains that have a presence, of course, are Tobias Vaughn and and um, the Cyber Planner. Um, I really enjoy Revenge of the Cybermen. That might be a less popular opinion, but I really enjoy the side, the look of the side in that story, the uh, the sense of their desperation, their cold, emotionless desperation. But maybe not quite fully emotionless, given some of the stuff that the cyber leader does in that story. I like that it introduces cyber leaders, although a, the term leader was mentioned as far back as the invasion. They're called section leaders, but even so, that's probably what they are: cyber leaders. Retroactively, things like. Stories like the Moon Base and such, or even the Tenth Planet, have cyber leaders, cyber leader Krail or something, but they're never called that at the time. Um, I'm sure they are, but even so, I really enjoy um, Earthshock. I love the '80s Cybermen. I think the, the that might be one of my favorite styles, uh, and probably because of their voices. People call it the Darth Vader voice style Cybermen. They just sound very scary, very scary. Um, those seven are quite quite frightening. Also because there's an element of, of you could argue, emotion to them. Some of the things that the Cybermen do in that story shows a little more individuality, a little more emotion. As the Doctor says in Earthshock about the Cyber Leaders, when asked, are all the Cybermen as dedicated? And uh, the Doctor says, compared to some, this one's positively flippant. <laughs> um, but there is a real menace to those creatures, those versions of the Cybermen, because they seem a little more like, in a weird way, like people. There is a... It's hard to explain, because on the one hand, you could say that they are a little less like Cybermen, a little less like the intention of the Cybermen being emo emotionless creatures, because whether or not they have emotion, they say that they don't, but in the a little bit in the body language, a little bit in the delivery, a little bit in the in the... In the dialogue. There is a stronger... There is a sense of menace. A sense of purpose. A sense of presence. Of, of, of sentience to these creatures. More than just being alive. But but uh, in intelligence. Quickness. Certainly uh, in David Banks' portrayal, which I think is very nice. More than nice. It's, it's quite spectacular. It's, it's quite memorable. I really like, even though it's even though it's something that you don't really see in other Cybermen, the interplays between the Cyber Leaders and the Cyber Lieutenants of those stories. Beginning in Earthshock, and very much reaching ahead in Silver Nemesis, something that people don't usually talk about, which is the, the clash of opinions between those two characters. Um, for example, it's very small, but something like Earthshock, when the uh, when the cyber leader says, let's detonate the bomb, and, and the lieutenant says, it's too, it's too soon, leader. Um, but he's still the first to the cyber leader's authority. And also, again, on the performance, when they're trying to restore their systems, the, the cybermen on this ship trying to restore their Earth-based systems, and, and the cyber leader is kind of clenching his fist, saying, hurry. It's a very human-like thing to do. It's very interesting to see cybermen like that. There's that sense of, again, real desperation now. It's not really necessarily cold anymore. It's more like a... a radiant 
There's something radiating within these Cybermen. There's something alive. In Five Doctors, you see a similar thing when this Cyber Leader, Lieutenant Ozone, says, I will take the patrol and destroy the Doctor and such. Um, and the Cyber Leader says, no. So again, there's a sense of initiative and then rebuttal. In Attack of the Cybermen, this Cyber Lieutenant keeps giving the Cyber Leader information, saying, no, we shouldn't trust this guy, we shouldn't trust this guy, meaning Lytton, and the Cyber Leader says, silence. Um, you know, similar things. Again, but, but I, it really comes to a head in Silver Nemesis, when the Cyber Lieutenant keeps saying, Leader, I must protest this course of action, and the Cyber Leader says, you are outside your function. I'm thinking to myself, could you have dissension within Cyber ranks? Could you have a situation where a Cyber Lieutenant feels so strongly against a Leader's course of action that he'll say, Leader, I must depose you? You see in later episodes in the new series, when a Cyber Leader is destroyed that the next in line, presumably a cyber lieutenant, is upgraded to a, a cyber leader. Could it be a situation where, at least in the 80s era, those, what they call the neomorphs, could you have a situation where the cybermen, a cyber lieutenant says, leader, you have caused reckless action, and you must be, you must be uh, eliminated. I don't know. You must be deleted, or whatever they say in that era. Later in Silver Nemesis, the cyber lieutenant keeps saying, "Sir, if we keep leader, if we keep doing this, we will cease to exist." And the cyber leader actually listens at that point. Says, "Your your assessment is correct." And then they leave. It's a very interesting moment, and one that I'm surprised hasn't been explored more. That sense of possible cyber dissension, cyber mutiny. You never know. Um, if I'm going and outside of the television series, well. I've, in, in the new series, I really like... I, I like Rise of the Cybermen. I like how the Cybermen were re reintroduced. I agree with some people that have said that maybe how they were reintroduced is kind of undercuts the body horror element. I like that RGD brought them back. I'm not so sure what I think about the, what they are, being mostly just a brain inside of a box. Um, essentially. Um, yeah, I've never quite understood why RGD altered that kind of fundamental or at least reduce the fundamental human nature of the Cybermen in his return. In their return. Um, I really like Nightmare in Silver. Um, closing Time, I think, is actually pretty scary, too. Uh, but I like Nightmare in Silver um, as a story. When it comes to the Cybermen now... Um, and again, I'll just say briefly, I really wish that some of the Doctors that don't have Cyber Stories have on screen have them like the third Doctor. That Therefore, I like I really like Tyrants of Logic. Uh, that gives us... And the Bluetooth, but Tyrants of Logic is a fir the first full cast third Doctor Cyberman story. Especially when the Doctor's being, yeah, at least on the mental level, cyber-converted is quite scary. The cyber... What was it called? The cyber-leveler. Oh, I would love to see this... I would... Cyber-leveler, like a, a mobile kind of like cyber-planner. I would love to see what that thing looks like. I think it's meant to be egg-shaped, so it probably looks like a just a massive cyber planner. Any story that gives us another cyber leader of some type, a leveler, um, oh, we have the planners or such. The cyber, Anytime we see the cyber controller, so Tomb of the Seven, Attack of the Seven, I really like Attack of the Cybermen. Um, good stories, in that way. Um, and therefore also, Age of Steel. You get to see the cyber controller again, just not played by, by Michael Kilgariff. But, um, 
when it comes to most recent stuff with the Cybermen, I, as I've explained before in my in the previous confidential, I thought that how the, the Cybermen returned in the haunting of Lilithio Dottie, at least the Cybermen element of that story, I thought was pretty good. But in the end, I was quite disappointed with how it ended, with just reducing him to a, a shod to kind of a. I like the zeal, but in the end, his the just you know being there kind of as the the token monsters, and then in the end, just being shrunken by the reduced literally by the master to a shrunken doll shape. It was rather undignified. So kind of a disappointing fizzle to a, a story arc. But I but I still it shows me that there are still there's still life to feature the Cybermen, the Silver Giants. Um. I'm thinking of the audio adventures before I... If there's anything else I want to say... I like the... Well, I can think of the novel. I like the Legal Alien. Uh, Seventh Doctor Ace novel. I like that. How the Cybermen are. I'd love to see what they actually look like. I like, um... The Harvest. Another Seventh Doctor audio. Um... Which had the very very unique idea of a Cyberman becoming more human. For a particular reason. Had the performance of the guy... Pl I have to look it up. I'll look it up. So I want to do my due diligence. Just one moment here. That was an interesting little story because, if I remember right, people were quite surprised because it was a nice cliffhanger. Oh my goodness, the Cybermen are here. Um, subject one, played by William Boyd. His performance in that story is pretty frightening. Um, pretty, pretty, pretty frightening. It was, um, it was something else. And, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. should note that the, we're almost at the point where The Harvest... The Harvest is an audio that came out in 2004, but set in October 2021. We are almost there. Interesting, huh? We are kind of reaching the point where the, where the classic and the new series has given us the near future. Well, we've reached the near future. Is it like what we saw? I don't know what we heard. I, I love Spare Parts as, a, as an audio story. Um... Other Cybermen Adventures. Um, Ow the Hour of the Cybermen is quite a good story. Quite a good story, because it features Downing Hopkins and finally somebody that wants to become a Cyberman. E even before... So before Ashad in the new series, you had Daniel Hopkins who wanted to become a Cyberman. He doesn't become a Cyberman. Spoilers, but he wanted to. Because of the death of his family, he wanted to lose his emotions. Therefore, the reaping is pretty good, too. The reaping is a very nice story. Uh, Six Doctor Audio with the Cybermen as well. Featuring the death of Perry's family, and at the end, she really wants, all, she considers losing her fam her emotions because she's torn open emotionally. Um, and, and it falls in that weird era when the new series had just come out and Big Finish maybe couldn't help themselves. They they couldn't use the new any elements of the new series, but they wanted to show some things. And so you have a Cyberman that's strongly probably an 80s style Cyberman on the outskirts of maybe the time war, who knows? Certainly some type of element there. Thinking of anything else. Other Cybermen stories. Um, Silver Turk is very good, too. Very much enjoy that. So there, there are many Cybermen stories that I absolutely enjoy. Uh, anytime that you feature a Cyberman, I'm going to, I'm going to love it. Anytime you feature... Um, Anytime I see a silver giant, silver Cyberman, I am thrilled, and I'm hooked. So I really can't say any single story, but I can talk about why I like all these other stories that I've, talk, that I've mentioned. Um, 
even the ones that might be a little silly are like Silver Nemesis in that oh, poor Cybermen that eventually they just keep blowing up. <laughs> even, a little touch of gold and they just explode. Oh. But they look beautiful. So, um, those are some of my answers. Those are my answers to the, um, to the questions and the bonus question with the Cybermen that Mark has given me for the final game part five in this confidential series. So, finally, my favorite Cyberman stories. Oh, again, why do you have to ask me all the hardest questions? Because there's not really a Cyberman story that I don't enjoy. The one that comes closest to it is probably Attack of the Cybermen, but even then, I, I like it. Um, my favorite Cyberman story is... It's probably, honestly, a tie between either the Moonbase or Rise of the Cybermen in the Age of Steel. Both of them have elements that terrify me about the Cybermen, and that's that they are essentially just people who don't think for themselves, can't think for themselves, and want to make you like them. They are implacable, unstoppable, they hide wherever they want to, and they'll use um, subtle methods to get what they want. The Cybermen, to me, work best not as a marching army, but as an insidious force. Like, they're terrifying when they march. Like, that's part of why I like Rise of the Cybermen and the Age of Steel, is the, the image of an army of, of silver giants just running rampant, grabbing people off the street and turning them into Cybermen is terrifying. Like, I had nightmares about that as a kid. I never get nightmares. But, um... But I, I, I do think they also work best if you set up the marching army with the the more subtle techniques that you see in stuff like the moon base, where they're hiding in places. They're pretending to be dead bodies underneath sheets and so forth. They're, they're coming in through secret entrances. They're introducing viruses and so forth to weaken the human populace. Because the Cybermen, I think, work best when they are on the back foot and they're not positioned strength. They're not just walking in and taking your planet. They're trying to do it subtly because they're on the run or because they've lost their home planet or because they're the last survivors of the race or whatever. They work best coming out of a position of weakness because you can see... Or coming out of a position of weakness allows you to realize what their goals are because they're trying to get to something. They're trying to get to power. They're trying to... to to do that by stepping on all of the so-called lower life forms in their way, and that makes them implacably terrifying. Okay, setting aside uh, the TV episodes, I will say my all-time favorite Cybermen story is the Big Finish audio spare parts. Um, it's with the Fifth Doctor and Nyssa, and for me, it's the definitive genesis of the cybermen much like tom baker had genesis of the daleks this is the story that originated the cybermen from the very beginning uh, it takes place on mondas which is the sister planet of earth which is currently lost and heading towards uh, something called the cherry bowl nebula and for all intents and purposes mondas is just like earth except everyone lives underground um, and it's a christmas story it doesn't have a religious aspect, but it's explained very cleverly about the planet's journey through space. And it really brings home the the horror of 
people doing whatever they can to survive um, just because they know their race is dying out. Um, the acting is top notch. Um, Nyssa and the Fifth Doctor are, you know, straight out of the 80s. Um, Nick Briggs is really creepy. Uh, Cybermen voice is perfected. And if you've never heard spare parts, I have always said it's the best Doctor Who story never made. It was slightly influenced in the uh, Rise of the Cybermen on TV, which I didn't like. Um, I didn't think that was a very inventive or unique or interesting story. But if they'd have done spare parts with, say, David Tennant and Martha Jones, it would have been absolutely incredible. Yeah, so if you haven't seen Spare Parts, I really, really recommend that you uh, set an evening aside and listen to Spare Parts with your eyes closed and just imagine Peter Davison and Sarah Sutton running around in a subterranean London. I also want to give a honorary mention to The Tenth Planet, because obviously it was their first, their first appearance of the Cybermen. And although at the time the... The strange voice that um, Peter Hawkins and Roy Skelton gave the Cybermen, it kind of sounded a little bit comedic. But when you hear it done nowadays by someone like Nick Briggs, it can come across as really scary. And he's managed to, in spare parts, give the Cybermen a creepy, disjointed feel. It's, you know, it's very emotionless. And the way they sort of stretch out vowels and things, it's, uh, it is a creepy voice rather than just sort of low and menacing like a David Banks Cyberman. So, uh, yeah, those are my uh, favorite things. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping uh, one day we get to see more and more Cybermen. We've seen them recently, and I'd like to see them uh, continue and get better and better. Well, hello again, everyone. Uh, for those listening to the Tra- Trap One podcast, um... Today is the 28th of April, 2020, at 2 p.m., um, and I guess for fun, today is a Tuesday. <laughs> um, funny little um, anecdote about Tuesdays in Doctor Who is that the um, the novelization of Doctor Who, The Savages, uh, so The Savages novelization by Ian Stewart Black, um, who wrote the original um, teleplay for that story, which is um, one of the last... William Hartnell, so therefore first Doctor stories, which featured the departure of Stephen Taylor. The novelization builds slightly upon a very obscure thread of, uh, narrative thread in that um, television story, which is that when the first Doctor arrives on the, that, the planet where Stephen eventually stays, um, he seems to be aware of something, aware of something about that planet. And when he confirms his suspicions, he has this machine. If you see any photographs, the episodes don't exist, but at least are not known to exist. But when you see the photographs of the filming, um, publicity photographs, he's holding this, I guess it's called a reticulator, this little machine box, essentially, with a, with a, with a scanning dish attached to its front. He says, yes, I'm right. Um, I think my friends are in for quite a surprise. And it's never really revealed, as far as I know, in the course of the story, what is the surprise about the planet where they are. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if the easy idea is that it's Earth, and what um, adds to that, this little anecdote, is that, um, about Tuesdays, is that in the novelization, written by the same man who wrote the teleplay, in Stuart Black, one of the characters who lives in the City of the Elders um, references his working schedule, and he says, oh, this is happening on Tuesday. 
all these things that always something always happens on a Tuesday. And the fact is, there's a little website, you know, the TARDIS wiki, which says it's never revealed what that means. And I think, well, it's probably pretty obvious what it means, to be very honest. It's a Tuesday, meaning it's Earth. It's far future Earth, but who knows? Um, so that's just a fun little thing to mention about, uh, to start by talking about Tuesdays. Um, but it is a Tuesday, and I am happy once again to return to you for the fifth time now, discussing the final game in this confidential series for the final game, Part 5. And, um, Part 5 is an important episode because it, um, this is the story that comes after the transitional episode of Part 4, which, um, once, um, recorded and designed by Gareth um, Severn, um, was the shortest episode to that point of the series um, at 37 minutes compared to the other episodes which were more around at least 50 minutes or so. Or the first episode which is about 66 minutes. In any case, um, it's a shorter episode. It's a transitional episode. I'm talking about part four. And so once you do a, um, a transitional episode like that where you shift your the action from Earth to Scarrow, uh, narratively, when I was planning this this part, I felt that it was important because at this point, it, because I knew from even before writing the individual scripts, it was going to be a seven-part story. If you do the math and want to keep your pacing right in a narrative sense, in a writing sense, in a craft sense, five of seven means you should be not finishing, but you should definitely be on your way towards um, explaining how you're going to finish. At least setting up the first layer of events, the the initial events of your conclusion, the be- essentially the uh, the beginning of the end situation. And so, part five narratively um, follows from part four in that uh, the majority of the action, instead of taking place on Earth, is taking place on Scarrow. And the um, characters. Um, we pick up immediately after part four, which is the the Emperor Dalek from Evil the Daleks, although I feel, as I said in my last Confidential, somewhat redesigned, largely and recognizably from Evil the Daleks, but with, in my mind maybe with a perhaps slightly larger and with a different paint job, essentially, you know, instead of being mostly white, it's now probably a little more on the gold and, you know, side of things, you know, gold and maybe purple and maybe some red as such. Uh, maybe a large, you know, similar colors to the Supreme Dalek of that era of Plan the Daleks, which also appears in this story. And I think it looks exactly the same as it should from um, Plan of the Daleks. Um, in a narrative sense, it, one early decision I made was, um, since you had the Doctor with his companions and such in Part 4, throughout all of Part 4 here, um, and you barely had the, the Doctor interacting with the Master by necessity, to preserve the sense of mystery and surrealism and, and eeriness about, oh my goodness, where are we? When are we? And such. Um, I decided to reverse that and split up the doctor, split up, um, the doctor from his companions for much of the story, and then pair him for that good portion of the story with the master. And so, this afforded me a chance to once again start exploring the the, the doctor master relationship. And again, now from a purely traditional antagonistic, you know, hero villain, they're fighting against one another, or at least they are. They are opposing one another at this point. They're not physically fighting, but they are too much, but they are opposing one another. Which is a change of pace from the previous installments, at least parts one through three, because there they were ostensibly, or at least for a provisional time, provisionally working together um, towards a common goal, or at least so it seemed. 
So I gave that, I mentioned earlier, and I think the, the third confidential, that my touchstone um, for the earlier episodes, although at the time since I didn't want to give anything away, I was, I was referring to the final game as a whole, or at least so it seemed. That, por that whole portion of the narrative of the final game. My touchstone for establishing and, and um, constructing the Doctor-Master relationship with those episodes was uh, the Clause of Axis, because you have certain, as I mentioned then, certain narrative types, certain dynamics between the Doctor and the Master. Um, certain ones where they're purely antagonistic, like in the Mind of Evil, um, and in a kind of and in a kind of an immediate sense, we have to fight one another. Or things like where they are antagonistic, but they are in a kind of a journey situation. That's more like calling in space. But then you also have the clause of Axos, which has them largely working together against the common foe, the Axons. And so um, that's a little bit more of what's happening in the first three episodes. The fourth transitions because at the very end of part three, you've discovered that they are the Master is working with the Daleks. Part four transitions. And so, if anything, that's a little more like maybe Frontier in Space with uh, the Master around, of course, uh, and causing trouble with the Doctor and Joe, maybe in captivity and such. Well, now with Part 5, I, can, if I was able to return to the Doctor and the Master being enemies, opposition, little forces. And so we shift in terms of a narrative mine or a... Or a, or a Roots. The roots shift from something like the claws of Axos to something more along the lines of, um, if in an immediate sense, more like the mind of evil, um, or the time monster, or any of the other stories where they are actively working against one another. Given that in things like the time monster, there, there's a, there, there's a certain, certain times a distance. What the, the doctor's in one place, the master's in another. Different part, different. Um, science facilities or rooms or TARDISes and such. Uh, a little bit lower, like the Wrath of Khan, I suppose. Um, where the characters are represented by their locations a little bit and their ships and such. There's an, a more of an immediacy in Part 5, and therefore I think that it's a little more like... It's, if their narrative roots are a little more like um, the Mind of Evil, or maybe the, maybe a little also the Colony Space, although there is... They are... They are... I would say yes, calling space because they are journeying towards something. But so bits of certainly the mind of evil, because they are close, they are in one place and they're not physically journeying, but a little bit like the calling space in that they are journeying towards something in a metaphorical sense, um, the discovery of what the master is planning to do. So much more on familiar ground in terms of antagonist, antagonists, uh, um, opposition, hero versus villain. Um, and this is something that I very much enjoyed writing because um, um, several people have noted that you can have, although the, the, the dynamic between the Doctor and the Master is pretty consistent across all incarnations, depending on the Doctor, and perhaps the Master as well, but I would say very much so depending on the Doctor because in comparison to one another and contrasting, um, the Doctor's come personality is quite a bit more variable than the Master, in the sense the Master's always going to be a bad guy. And the Doctor will always be a good guy, but the Doctor's approach to being a good guy changes quite a bit more, in my opinion, than the Master's approach to being a bad guy. And therefore, you can have different, very different flavors of a Doctor-Master relationship across the different incarnations of both, but certainly the Doctor. Uh, people have often cited that Sometimes it's simply good and evil, 
good versus evil for the doc- in, in representing in the representatives of the Doctor and the Master, and people would cite uh, Peter Davison and Anthony Ainley as being fairly, purely good versus evil. In contrast, a lot of people have cited Sylvester McCoy and Anthony Ainley, a different Doctor and a very different inter- interpretation of the Master, um, as opposed to the Davison years. Same actor, Anthony Ainley, but very different costume and performance is quite different too. I'm talking about survival, of course. Um, some people would have categorized the Seventh Doctor and the Master's um, dynamic as being sane versus insane. I thought that was actually a very, very inspiring little um, comparison. I wish I could say it was mine, but it was uh, someone I saw on a forum. I honestly don't know who it was. I just happened to glance and see it a few years ago on a Doctor Who forum. They called Davison versus Ainley, five, Fifth Doctor versus Master, good versus evil. Seventh Doctor versus Master, sane versus insane. If I were to consider that, what would I consider to be um, the third Doctor and the Master? Well, I would definitely consider it good versus evil. Uh, But if I were to qualify it a little more subtly, as opposed to Davison versus Ainley, which I believe you could argue is, I agree there, is pretty, very strong and powerful, but also very simply good versus evil. I would, if I were to qualify Pertwee versus Delgado, I would call it the hero versus villain. Which is good versus evil, in my opinion. But um, the third Doctor is, is um, certainly more hawkish and sharper and um, and stridently authoritative than the fifth Doctor. And and the Master, as played by Roger Delgado, as opposed to as played by Anthony Ainley, but a decade later, is um, a little more controlled. And these are not positive or negatives. I, I really enjoy both uh, Delgado and Ainley. But Delgado is certainly a little more controlled, a little more, you could argue, sane than Ainley. Um, Kate O'Mara's Ronnie in The Mark of the Ronnie, it's in the Colin Baker era, refers to the Ainley masters imbalanced. I think you could definitely say that, uh, make that argument about Antony's master. I don't feel that you could really easily make that argument about Roger Delgado's master. I think you could call him megalomaniacal, perhaps, or at least power mad, or or um, power craving. Um, but imbalanced, I don't think so. Not Delgado. Um, driven, ambitious. Uh, power, craving, authoritative, totalitarian, tyrannical, certainly, uh, but not imbalanced, not too paranoid, uh, not insane. You can make those arguments at times for Ainley, depending on the performance. Um, it depends on the performance. Some of those performances, he is quite, I love it every moment, of, he's, he's quite over the top. Um, Castor Valva, um, oh, Mark of the Ronnie, um, perhaps Time Flight as well. Um, but but then there are times where he's quite um, controlled, like something like Logopolis or um, the Ultimate Foe, and certainly Survival. But Delgado is very um, consistent. 
And therefore, that's why I like to qualify it as being hero versus villain. Because they are good and evil, but there's not a... The campiness that a lot of people often um, attach to the master. Um, there's a reason why I think people often will... Same, many of the same people will often say... Uh, that Delgado was the best master because he isn't very camp, meaning that you can take him seriously. Um, in a ways that I, understandably, some people perhaps with some of the later masters, beginning probably with Ainley, have felt a little more um, either compelled to say I can't take him as seriously or rest restrained in their praise, perhaps, because there's often really a default back to, well, how did Delgado portray the master quite well? So certainly I want to recapture that. But anyway, you, so you have this hero-villain dynamic that I really wanted to now establish with its roots in the mind of evil and things like Claws of Axis and Time Monster and such. Meaning they're, the Doctor and the Master are very much antagonistic. They're very much um, opposed to one another. But still very polite and poised and preferential in their treatment towards one another. Very, very, um, it's very um, gentlemanly. Um, and so, the plot threads of Part 5 split in this way, that as soon as the Master's Reveal is the new Emperor of the Daleks, the Supreme Emperor, whatever you want to call him, the Master of the Daleks, um, he sends the Doctor's companions away back to their cell, or at least a cell, uh, identical to what was their cell in, um, in, um, on Earth. And, excuse me, so the, um, the doctor and the master then, they, um, go off on their own, with a few Daleks as, as guards, but they, 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 they move to, um, to go to another location. And I take a moment to mention going, moving to another location, because in a narrative sense, in a, in, a, in a dramatic, in a narrative sense, it was, you know, you know just a moving from one location to another. We leave the throne room of the Emperor, and they go into a, a lift or an elevator, as I would call them. I'm an American still, but I call it a lift, of course, because it's a British show. You go into the lift, and they descend quite a ways into the um, depths of the Dalek city. We know it to be called Kalan, and this is Kalan uh, from the new series, and probably other books as well, certainly. So this is Kalan. I don't call it Kalan in this story, simply because um, I definitely thought about it. But I simply thought, well, it was never mentioned in the Pertwee era, and um, it doesn't really matter um, naming it. It's just what matters, excuse me, in my opinion, is that it's made clear that it's the same Dalek city that the first Doctor visited um, in the television story, The Daleks. And um, so the Doctor and the Master then, of course, travel and they go into the, they reach the uh, master's science lab, um, lab, but in a dramatic sense, that's what's happening. But in a narrative sense, also, there was another purpose to this, which was to um, give a little bit of space and time in the story to allow this this oppositional antagonistic approach um, for the doctor and the master in a poised, polite way, to and polished way, to um, to flourish and to grow and to have a little room to breathe. And also, to reminisce a little bit, you know, the 
the conversation that the Doctor and the Master have is where the Master says, who would have thought, could the time was ever imagined, or whatever, you and I with a bunch of Daleks traveling as if we're strolling nonchalantly. And the Doctor, of course, says, I prefer not to imagine this. But um, it also allows the story, my story essentially, but you know, I'm being a little silly, but, but it allows the story to... Um, to broadcast a little bit more of its meaning. And to start that, you have some exposition. But um, I wanted, I knew that I was writing some exposition, which is essentially just a lot of information, revealing more of the plot, and just spoken prose, essentially. And writing exposition is an interesting trick in that it is one of the easiest pitfalls or points of contention or critique of any story because you have to do it. Um, you have to reveal information in a story. Now, it should note that exposition doesn't always have to mean plot revelation. It could be plot conveyance or plot, pro, um, plot um, uh, progression. You, for example, you could have certain films where you have uh, a group of characters saying we um, we have to A, B, and C to be able to get from here to there, uh, so that we can continue in the story. You know, they're not saying we have to continue in the story, but we have to save save the city from um, from this plague infestation or something. Well, where's the plague? And um, where the where are the canisters or the plague canisters? Or they're in the they're in the uh, the bank vault down the street. But there's an army cordon, or an army um, uh, blockade between us and there. Well, how do we get around there? Well, we could we could circle around on this street and take that street. Well, that street's got a um, there's a big uh, sinkhole. Well, then we can jump over this building and such and so so forth. Now, that's exposition. Um, the exposition itself, the the it's the part part of the meat of a story. How you chew through the meat is the the craft and you have to do it in a in a way that will hold your audience so that you don't just the audience the listeners in this case don't just simply take it as exposition meaning okay we're just waiting 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 oh, blah 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 because you might have some extremely important um, elements revealed in the exposition and you don't want your audience to to unfocus because they might tune out the moment they might tune out the information so that when important plot points are referenced again later on, they might say, "Why? Well, I, I missed that. And then you fault the story in a different way that isn't perhaps not its due. By saying, that perhaps the story wasn't, wasn't very exciting at that moment. And that's a legitimate criticism. But to say, oh, I didn't, it didn't tell me this because you were unfocused, which might be the story's fault, but it's not the story's fault. It might be the presentation's fault, but it's not necessarily the plot's fault if it tells you everything you need to know. Um... But uh, as an audience, you were unfocused because it was a boring moment. That's the main thing. What it comes, how it reduces is exposition can be often very boring. So, how I wanted to couch and and convey my exposition at this point was to. Um, there was, it was a calculation, of course, which was okay. If the fans have wanted to hear Pertwee and Delgado, essentially, as played by Marshall Tankersley and Terry Cooper, give them a, a little bit of time away from each other, and then. Start the exposition right when you have them, to, the Doctor and the Master together. Your fans, the listeners, will be very um, in, uh, you know, connected to the story because this is something they've been waiting for for a little while, to have the Doctor and the Master meeting again. 
and sparring again and, and discussing again and, and just simply being together again. Um, and I also felt that a really good way to um, discuss and to disseminate um, the exposition was continuity. But a good use of continuity. Now, might as well take a moment to talk about what I mean by good use of continuity. There have been many, many stories in Doctor Who that are um, sequels to other stories, or prequels to other stories, or connected to other stories, or sidequels, or requels, whatever you want to call it. Um, but let's just simply say that they don't fully stand on their own. They have some connection to another story. Sometimes it's very subtle, sometimes it's quite um, obvious. A sequel, depending on how it's made, it can be probably one of the most obvious ways that you have a story connected to another. For example, um, I'm trying to think of a good sequel story in Doctor Who, I mean, on television at least. Um, there are more than I might think. Uh, well, one that might see that is a sequel, but it's when you think about it, actually less than you might think, are things like the Silurines, the Sea Devils, and then Warriors of the Deep. Two Pertwee stories and then one Davison story. Silurines and Sea Devils are not exactly sequels because they are they're like they're I don't know what you call it, sidequels maybe. They are they are thematic sequels. The events of one don't really impact the other, but they are dealing with very similar themes that are um, um, resonant. Meaning, of course, you battle the Silurians, and then you battle the Sea Devils, who happen to be aquatic brothers to the Silurians. They're not connected in that, oh, because what we did in the Silurians leads into the Sea Devils. We're like, okay, what we did in the Silurians will inform us about what we are doing in the Sea Devils. Warriors of the Deep on the surface seems like a direct sequel to those stories because it features the Silurines and the Sea Devils and they are referencing past events of past Doctors. But when you... and I'm, on the surface I mean this. Um, when the Doctor confronts Iktar at the end of um, Warriors of the Deep, the fifth Doctor I mean, he, he approaches Iktar as a familiar face, quote-unquote. He says, oh, my face is different, but in an earlier regeneration, we have met before. Now, on screen, the only time that the Doctors had met the Silurians, at least at that point, um, prior to Warriors Deep was the Silurians, with John Pertwee's Doctor. And so, I'm sure the viewers then, again, it, it's, it's different from how we would be now, because that's a story that's coming out in 1984, filmed in 1983, but even so, in 1984, um, early 84, um... Yeah, viewers then, would, by then, would have had VHS videotape, and so they would have been able to see some of those stories, probably a few of them at least. But I would imagine that um, on the whole, at least perhaps more casual viewers, perhaps very young children at the time, if it was their, certainly if it was their first time watching Doctor, they would not have been aware of something like the Silurines, because before, before they were born. Or even if it wasn't, they would have been still young enough that they much of their life probably wouldn't have, would have been without VHS. And so you're taking the doctor's word for it to a certain extent as a viewer. If I'm putting myself in the mind of the viewers at that time, you're taking the doctor's word for it that he's met Iktar before. Now, of course, uh, 
Yktar looks very different from the Silurians of the John Pertwee story, and so, unless in a kind of meta, in a meta textual sense, you ignore that. It, um, you can ignore that, but you also re realize that there's no Silurian named Iktar in the Silurians. So for that reason, it, when you actually dig deeper into the, se the sequel element of the Warriors Deep, Warriors Deep becomes quite interesting. Uh, because what would be just a, se a surface level, okay, sequel becomes something else. It actually is referencing, it's a sequel to unmade television stories. Or unmade, untelevised, I should say, Doctor Who stories that were never probably considered or even designed, but they are creating a back history, which involves the Doctor meeting with the Silurians at least another time. It, um, it involves um, peace attempts between the Silurians and the humans, where the Silurians, at least according to Iktar, from his perspective, twice um, offered peace. When you think about it, the Silurians don't exactly offer peace in the, in the John Pertwee story of the Silurians, so that implies that there are at least two other meetings with Silurians in between the events of the Silurians, which take place circa 1969, and the events of Warriors of the Deep, which are explicitly in 2084. So you're almost, a, oh, well, actually, you're more. You're, 100, you're dealing with 115 years of history. Very interesting. What are those two other meetings? Are they things we've seen on screen? Who knows? Why do I mention all that? I mention it because you can make, um, in terms of continuity, on a surface level, I mentioned all, I mentioned that as an anecdote to say that on a surface level, um, Continuity itself can be simple. Oh, it's a sequel to another story, and here are some characters again. Or here's we've returned to Scarrow again. Or we've returned to any other situation. Um, and it can be positive and fun, not as a fan, but as as a fan and also if you can it has its detractors, it has its crit critics, understandably so. The sense of well this story is reliant upon others to be as good as it's trying to be, and therefore it's perhaps not as good as it's trying to be. Now, you could argue that that's perhaps a little too um, harsh of a critique. Just because it has continuity, it is therefore we a weaker story. But there is that argument. My feeling is the way to counteract that, not counteract, but the way to inoculate yourself against that argument is to use continuity, if you're going to use it, as I do, in a, in a creative way. Um... In, in a creative way that, that that's... Well, you try to be innovative with such things. And I use, um... As a... As a model for this type of continuity use, uh, certain authors like, um... Like David M. McKinty, or... Or Gary Russell, or Craig Hinton, the late Craig Hinton. My friend who, um... Was... Was very adept at taking... Um, strands from different stories, you know, moments of different stories that were perhaps, as originally intended, totally um, unrelated. But perhaps, as a fan, noticing, well, they use the same costume in this situation, or they use the same um, location for you know, maybe the filming location or such, or maybe the same, uh, they reference the same type of entity or things like that that may not be the same thing, but it seems so similar. Let's connect them. You always want to do things in moderation, but um, I, like Craig, um, have the view of, of 
Doctor Who as, as, a, as a canon, as a series, as being holistic. Holistic Doctor Who universe, meaning that anything that happens in the books, in the comics, in the television series, etc., any medium of Doctor Who, happens. And not just simply that it all happens, but has equal importance maybe to, di- to different timelines. No, it all happens in the same reality. Meaning, just in my perspective, as I, as I mentioned in part one of the story, there's only one Doctor. Timelines don't have alternate reality selves. As RTD has said, different people might have different opinions and different showrunners such, but RTD have that, has that opinion. He said so in an interview himself, and I have, I have that opinion. So, if there's just one timeline, that gives you a lot of more room to intertwine. And so, in this scene, when the Doctor and the Master are giving their exposition, mostly the Master, I felt that the best way to chew through this meat of the exposition was to use continuity, was to reveal, okay, the Master's going to start explaining what his his um, plan is. Um, as a setup for this, let's ex- have him explain how he, his situation, how is he taking control of the Daleks. And so, I decided to make things um, purely of the, well, at least of the, purely of the Pertwee era. And so I only referenced um, television stories involving the Master, or not, but certainly Pertwee era television stories. Now I had one exception that I, I start, of course, this whole situation, granted this is in part four, with the one exception that I refer- referenced a Troughton era story, Evil of the Daleks. Just at least in passing, uh, essentially establishing that yes, this is the same Emperor as Evil the Daleks. Yes, this is Goscaro. Yes, this is after the events of Evil the Daleks. But it's in passing. It's oh, so you survived the your humanized Dalek civil war? Yes, we did, and now we are stronger. Um, so necessary world building and situating timeline situating. Here we have a situation um, revelation, which is um, the Master. Um, explaining how he has taken control of the Daleks. So what I did is I, we- I thought to myself, well, how do I do that? How do I weave together a situation involving probably, the, uh, hopefully just the Pertwee era, to create uh, a coherent situation the Master could, at this point, um, have control of the Dalek Empire? And so, I thought to myself, well, what are, what are, the, what are the touchstones that I have? What are the, which are the the points of interest, the television stories which deal with the Master and the da- and or the Daleks. I thought, well, you have all the Master stories, of course, but involving Daleks in the Pertwee era, you have Day of the Daleks, you have Plan the Daleks, you have Death to the Daleks. So, um, I pretty quickly thought to myself, well, Death to the Daleks is kind of a, although I've referenced it already and tied it into the this story in that the Master, he gave the Daleks their plague missile technology, and he is at least aware of Exelon, because there's a scene in Part 4 where he uses the same type of technology to shut down all the techno- um, uh, lights and such in the in the room. Energy draining, essentially, from the great city of Exelon. Ex- the, the events of Exelon, Death to the Daleks, are fairly when you think about it, tangential, not not important, but tangential to any ongoing Dr. Dalek narrative in that the Doctor and the Daleks both happen to arrive on this planet roughly the same time. It may be coincidental and convenient, but it's uh, that's Doctor Who. <laughs> um, but it's fairly tangential, and the, do- the Master's not involved, and from my perspective in the final game, the Master is, um, you know, imprisoned on Earth. So, 
I thought, okay, let's not use Death of the Daleks too much. At least as, 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 as a tangential element. Yes, the Master's aware, and he's been... I gave him a hand, so to speak, in, in the events with the plague missiles. So, But let's not use that too much. So I thought, well, that leaves me Day of the Daleks and Plan of the Daleks. Okay. So what can I do with those situations? Well, as a kind of a mirror to the events of the final game's back history... Day of the Daleks, the Master is again imprisoned. Well, he's earlier, he's imprisoned. And so I thought to myself, well, okay, well, he's imprisoned. Can he yet be involved in that story directly? Not exactly. Well, he's not, obviously. But I thought to myself, well, what you have in that story, though, is um, this time paradox. And it never reveals how that time paradox came along. Now, you don't have to reveal every time paradox as being the result of something, but I thought, well, let's exploit, but let's say that it is. And and I thought the, it was a fairly easy, obvious and easy idea, which is, okay, let's just say it was the paradox is instigated or created by the Master. Not the events of the paradox, but the existence of the paradox, the space of the paradox, so to speak. And so the Master reveals that he, while imprisoned in Day of the Daleks, created, using his Time Lord powers, he created the, the, the paradox events um, of Day of the Daleks. And he reveals that he um, also creates this um, hypnotic sub um, neural pathway that he uh, introduces uh, into the paradox that manifests and uh, infiltrates the Daleks' um, um, computer systems, their neural network. Um, but then, of course, because the Doctor destroyed that paradox, at first the Doctor says, well, I destroyed that paradox, so... How could how could this continue? And the master, of course, does a little faint and says, "Well, I designed it in a way that it would uh, simply go in this my um, my neural network um, um, takeover, my neural network control would simply go dormant should the, it sense the the destruction, the uh, erasure of the paradox. The only thing, that, and so it was only delay. The only thing that forced me to do was I needed to manually uh, restart it, reactivate it." That gives another layer, then, to Plan of the Daleks, or Frontier Space Plan of the Daleks, um, in that um, that explains another reason as to why the Master got himself involved in the first place in the Earth-Draconian War. And hence his line, See, Doctor, there's always a deeper meaning to my to my designs. Um, and I, I wrote that line, and that, and inserted that intention into the narrative of the final game, because I've always felt... I'm not at all saying that I have all the answers, but I've always felt that anything that the Master does has a deeper design. Uh, it's a, I suppose it's a rebuttal, it's my own rebuttal to the critique that some of the stories featuring the Master, certainly like in the, the 1980s, were rather small fry, or maybe rather simple, um, for the Master's scope and ability. There's even a reference to it in um, The King's Demons, where the Master's trying to change the course of history, and the doctor says it's small time villainy for him, but even so, he actually says that. Well, I, um, I thought to myself that you could have large, perhaps, even though it seems like small time villainy for some of these adventures, it could be larger intentions. Because when you think about the Delgado years, he tends to have, in a lot of his stories, fairly even the quote-unquote smaller things, fairly dangerous elements involved in his adventures. The Nestines and Terror of the Autons, the Mind Parasite and Mind of Evil, the Axons. He's, granted, he's not using them, he's being 
He's captured by them and such, but even so, the Axons are quite a powerful race. The Doomsday Machine, the Doomsday Weapon in Calling Space, Azal, the Daemon and the Daemons. Um, the Sea Devils are quite important, but of course that's a little more of a smaller, you could argue smaller story, but he's captured, so he's planning an escape. But even so, the Sea Devils are a threat. Certainly Kronos and the Time Monster. In fact, when I watched those stories, preparing for the final game, I thought to myself, they could have finished the Delgado storyline with the Time Monster. Easily, because had the story been a little different, had the Doctor been a little less merciful. Imagine the events of the Time Monster ending with Kronos saying, I will hold the Master forever and in and, and torment, or he will be my, my puppet, my slave, or my prisoner, and then you see the Master pleading and then fading away. That's a different ending to, than to the Master story, and that could pretty much be the final game. In a sense, in that that could have been a... They could have made the Master a Master story a two-year, two-series story, series eight and nine, and then giving a good closure. And they probably would never have seen the Master again, or at least not for a while. It could have made, certainly... Um, say all things being equal, Delgado still dies in 1973, 18th of June. Um, it could have made the Master's return a little, maybe, quicker... Uh, after his death or not, but uh, maybe a little easier in the sense of, well, his storyline's already done, we want to bring the Master back. I'm not sure if they would have done it with Pertwee, I think Pertwee still, as he said in interviews, would have only really wanted to play alongside Delgado as the, ma you know, as the Master. Um, but, even so, maybe with a later Doctor, we might not have got something like the Deadly Assassin with the Master in a transitional state, as he was, because they could have easily explained, oh, I escaped, but I regenerated. And, and such. So it's, Different possibilities. But in any case, the Master having um, darker designs, what seems like small-time building, you could definitely subscribe to Planet Frontier and Space Planet the Daleks, because his previous story, he's dealing with Kronos, the, the time monster, and yet here he's just dealing with, quote-unquote, humans and draconians. Just starting a war. It really is in the, in the context of what was being made, kind of like an interlude adventure. Um... I liken it a little bit, you could argue, to the original Star Trek films, the one with, with, the, with the original crew, the first six. And then people talk about Star Trek 2 through 4 as being a trilogy and then having a follow-up in Star Trek 6. And therefore, the, some people ignore Star Trek 5. Well, there is, an in, there is maybe an interlude quality to Star Trek 5, but a very important interlude quality. And I liken maybe Frontier in Space for the Master being a little like Star Trek 5 in the sense that um, there was this progression of events and then you have a break a little bit, you could argue, and then what seems a little different compared to what has come before and what would have come afterwards. So I'm giving this interlude event, Frontier in Space, a deeper meaning to the Master, to things off-screen, connecting to Day of the Daleks. And that why is the Master involving himself with the Daleks? So he can cause a war and cause chaos and destruction, and so that he can reactivate his paradox-based... Um, Dalek neural network takeover. And so that exposition gets explained, and I use the continuity and the sense of the camaraderie between the Doctor and the Master and their, their, their loggerhead, but very polite loggerhead dynamic to explain it. So that's how I explain through the, the exposition. While the, and of course, as another interlude, of course, while the Doctor's doing this, you, of course, have to explain what the companions are doing, and I really like doing that, too, because I love stories and scenes with the Brigadier and, and the Unit Year's characters. And here we have an abundance, because you have 
not just the Brigadier, but Yates and Benton and Sarah Jane and Liz and Jeremy Thorpe, who's going through his little minor, very, not minor, but very short-run um, redemption arc, because now he sees that he his distrust of the Doctor is definitely misplaced and has resulted in some ter- a terrible placement of the Earth. But um, while the Doctor and the Master are doing their things, um, the the the, the companions are, are are on their own. And this was a little bit of a trick, too, a little bit of a challenge, which was, okay, do I have the companions just sitting there talking to one another? Sure, but uh, then it would just be, oh, they have nothing to do. So I thought, what can I, what can they do in this situation? I thought, well, the least what they can do is work together and give a sense of how they work together, show that the history and the, um, and the, the trust and the restoring trust between the doctor, excuse me, between the brigadier and Benton and Yates, the restored trust, I should say, and how they work together, and then each each just saying, "What do we do?" And then some thoughts. Maybe we could. Yates says, "Well, we could maybe try the the, the cliched. Oh, this prisoner's injured, the, but of course, the Brigadier says, "I don't think they'll listen. Good idea, but it might kill us." Um. But then, of course, that you have. This was the trick, which was, "What can they do that could far, further their plot?" And then I thought to myself, "Well." The override device, which I which I have established as be, from the very beginning of the series, is certainly created in part two. Um, that was uh, has as its basis this telepathic, well, not telepathic, but this time lord device found in Liz Shaw's um, satellite circuitry. This um, comes into play in that Liz has it. Benton suggests this. Says, well, "What about that, that gizmo that Doctor has?" And I. I wanted. I really wanted that little line, Benton, to have that line because Benton seems, tends to be the one who, when they have exhausted apparent all options, Benton says the common sense solution, and uh, there you go. Like in the Green Death, when they're wondering what in the world happened to this maggot, it died, and it's saying, and all the scientists, these brilliant minds, are saying, well, how do we do this? What what is this? What can it be? And then Benton says, maybe it was something it ate. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> so same idea, same cause and reason, which is, oh, what about that? The Doctor's Gizmos uh, professor. Oh yes, Sergeant, you're a genius. Um, and so um, Liz starts altering the circuit to see if she can use it to open the doors to their cell, and that's what they're doing for a little while. But it gives them something to do—a credible idea, a uh, sense of okay, they'll every you know the, everyone else kind of huddles around Liz so they can block maybe any camera, so the cameras can't quite see what she's doing too easily even infrared cameras or such. And you, and even Thorpe, um, his redemption arc continues by he says, hey, can I, I want, I, I understand, I, I'm repentant, I know that I was wrong, but I want to help you, can I, uh, I want to stop the master in that. And, and this is what I like about these characters, is that I feel that they are, and certainly Doctor Who of that era, is that they are very trusting. Not naively so, but they understand the goodness of humanity. And, and they also understand that when their back's against the wall, your harshest critic is now perhaps your greatest friend or ally because they know your strengths and weaknesses, but they are knowing your strengths and weaknesses, appealing to your better nature, saying, I might not agree with everything you do, but I know that you do it well, so I want to help you. And so Thorpe is now on their side helping and standing with the brigadier at the door, listening for any monsters or any any, um, Daleks or such approaching. And so... That establishes, kind of anchors the narrative point or thread for the companions. What are they doing? They are trying to escape. 
using the Doctor's override device. Liz will try to... This gives Liz something to do, which is... Because this would be her best arena. I felt that in a confined space on the battlefield, you know, you want the Brigadier and the, and the unit soldiers. That, that's their arena. But in a confined space where you have, in an alien world, where your your fists or your strategic brain, your, your fighting brain, is um, neutralized, essentially... And you're, th- you're thinking. Then the, um, the s- what's left is your creative brain, your scientific brain, if you have it. And in the Doctor Who world, this is science fiction. That tends to be a scientist point of view. Soldiers and scientists working together. Here, it's t- tilting more towards the scientist, Liz Shaw. So, and again, allowing Liz to be kind of the big sister to Sarah Jane, showing her how it's done, because it's still very early in Sarah's time. Um, and long after. Liz's time with Doctor Who, so this with her time with the Doctor. So this, it's subtle, but that's what's happening there too, which is Liz showing Sarah how to what to do in in and using her resources in tough situations. I don't outright say that, but that was the intention, and I think that maybe hopefully I'm getting I was getting that across to the audience, the listeners, which is all the stuff that's happening really whenever Liz is around other people, including especially Sarah Jane, she's showing things. She may not be saying, I'm your, uh, your tutor, but certainly I think Sarah Jane is thinking, you, you're my tutor. Because I'm watching what you're doing, because you've done it before, and you do these things really well. So meanwhile, we get back to the Doctor and the Master. And the Doctor and the Master um, enter the, 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 um, this temporal chamber, where the Master's perfected the fusion of Time Lord and Dalek technology to create this temporal transmat. Um... And, of course, you have a Dalek technician inside, and it can sense the approach of people, and, oh, someone's here, oh, it's the Master, allow, them to pa- allow him to pass, and such, and enter. Now, I should make, take a moment to mention this particular Dalek. I noticed, um, and I'm glad someone noticed this, not, a, not exactly what I was um, ex- uh, expecting, but they noticed something, which is, on a YouTube, with a YouTube comment for um, Part 5, Someone said, I'm noticing all these different Dalek voices, and they reference a few, like, they have, like uh, Power of the Daleks, maybe, and um, Planet of the Daleks, maybe also Death of the Daleks, and such, and they're right. Well, they, in, I have different Dalek-sounding voices. Um, so they, so I'm, I'm very appreciative that someone, at least one person, and I'm sure others, I'm sure, but certainly one person has vocally stated that they're noticing different Dalek voices. Well, here's a little, neat little secret, I suppose, but um, there was one intended voice, um, that I wanted to feature then. This person didn't, maybe they noticed, but they didn't mention it in the YouTube comment. The Dalek technician in the temporal chamber um, has an interesting little voice. It's a slightly hesitant voice. And maybe someone will know what I'm talking about here. But um, I specifically asked James Hart, who does the Dalek voices for our story. I gave him a clip of a Dalek from The Chase. And I said, can you do a voice, not a, it doesn't have to be so, you know, hesitant as it is in the chase, but I said, I, I gave, gave him the time code such a, of such of this, the scenes with the Daleks in the chase, I said, notice this Dalek here, a lot of people have often ridiculed this Dalek, it has a very kind um, strange delivery, for example, if the Dalek might say, you are to, well, I'll try to do a little bit, but you are to be exterminated, <laughs> a very clipped and, and precise and, and confident, so to speak, but this Dalek is, speaks something like when they would ask the question what is the location what what is our uh, estimated time of arrival and this Dalek says something like uh, um, es- um, estimated t- 
time of arrival. Um, uh, so it's, it's almost as if this Dalek is drunk, <laughs> or unsure, or, or, or unsettled, certainly. It, it, it's, it's slurring its words, it's, it's kind of starting and stopping, and almost saying, pausing with uncertainty. Now, I don't know what the production intent was for the, for the voicing of that Dalek. But it definitely seems to be a pilot Dalek of some sort. Um, certainly on the more scientific side, you probably wouldn't send that Dalek into battle. It has a gun stock, I believe, but, but you wouldn't send that Dalek into battle because it, you'd probably say, it would probably be like, uh, who, who, who do I um, um, eh, uh, ex, exterminate? I don't know. But it, it has a strange quality to it. I think you could definitely argue that that, uh, you could argue is a genesis for some other types of Daleks, like like some of the Daleks you see, the time controller Daleks as such, in that with a different delivery and, and more of an emotion to the voices. You could also argue that the humanized Daleks and the evil of the Daleks perhaps have a hand in that type of re-evaluation of Dalek delivery and performance. In any case, my intention with the technician Dalek in this story, part five, is that this Dalek is a successor type Dalek to the Dalek that you see in the chase, and um, the hesitant Dalek, so to speak, because in my view... That Dalek is a very early um, time-type Dalek, a, a temporal Dalek. Not exactly a time-controller Dalek, but a Dalek that is um, aware, perhaps um, infused with some time-travel radiation. It's able to read time. But if you think of, uh, essentially, if it's the first Dalek time machine, your first Dalek that's trying to do that, the technology is very new to the Daleks, very crude and nasty, as the Seventh Doctor once said about Time Lord, excuse me, about Dalek time travel. Um, and very primitive. You can imagine that in the Hartnell era, the first Dalek time ship essentially would be, or at least the first one that's working, would probably be the first, the last in a series of probably definite failures. And so it's the best, the, the best that they can do is a Dalek that can somewhat read the time streams as, and the timelines, or whatever you want to call it, can somewhat navigate the vortex, but it's such a strange experience for this Dalek, whose mind is based on logic and reason, that as it's, as it's watching, in my mind, as its eye stock is somehow attached into the time vortex as they're moving, or maybe it's just simply reading the energy outputs of the, of the, t uh, the time machine as it's traveling through the vortex, is it's very confusing. And this Daleks, I would think, by necessity, they've perhaps, are in their own way hypocrites in that they are all, the Daleks are about racial and genetic purity, but in order to travel in time, they have to make a change. I like to think that the earlier Dalek time ships, so they just put some Daleks in, uh, inserted some Daleks into the mach their machine, sent them in time, and the, <laughs> and the Daleks are driven mad and, and killed each other or something. Or killed themselves, because they couldn't handle it. So they had to make some alterations by necessity to this particular Dalek technician, and it's quite confused, maybe not almost but not, you know, specifically insane. It's, it's, or at least it's, it's an idiot Dalek, essentially, in the sense that it, it doesn't understand what's happening, but it has a purpose and it's barely able to achieve it. In my mind, the Master has taken that, those types of Daleks. The Daleks have already perfected them quite a bit. You don't see too many Daleks like that. You certainly don't even see them, Daleks like that in the Daleks Master Plan, which was the next story after the chase featuring the Daleks, and that certainly featured also time-traveling Daleks. 
But I like to think that maybe those Daleks are still around. Maybe they're on Skaro still, who knows. But that Dalek was intentionally the Dalek, the hesitant Dalek from the chase was intentionally my Genesis idea for the Dalek technician in the final game. It's the same, no, I'm not saying it's the same Dalek, what I'm saying is the same strand of Daleks, the same strain of Daleks um, that have been more perfected. And so they, there's, the hesitation's only slight. These are much more ex Dalek, uh, experienced Daleks with time travel and time, time viewing. But there is a slight hesitancy to the voice, which is what I asked James to do. So very well done, James. Thank you. Um, and so, when the Doctor and the Master enter the chamber, they have a few Daleks with them waiting on the side. And when the Master makes it clear, stay, stay a little distance away. We don't want any trouble, because this is very sensitive equipment. Um, in my mind, I'm thinking of what this machine, what, what does this machine look like? Um, I like to think it maybe is a cross between Oh, a Dalek time capsule of the chase or the progenitor machine, um, the the Dalek creation machines and something like Victory of the Daleks and oh maybe a cube shape though to probably with a cube shape so like a TARDIS so element and maybe some some of the girders that you might have seen in the McGann television console room maybe on the outsides with the with the excuse <coughs> me with, with the roundels and such just to, or anything but you know something that looks both Dalek and Time Lord in design. So you're going to have roundels, definitely, and a cube. In any case, um, so like you could, like the, the Pandora, a little bit like the Pandorica, you could, you could see. Or default shaped TARDIS. In any case, this is where the exposition continues, but now it's, it, it, I felt that it was certainly the point in the story to reveal what exactly is the Master's plan. We're not revealing everything yet, but what is the Master's plan? in this anti-penultimate episode. Now is the time to reveal what is the Master's plan. And the Master, of course, reveals his plan. He has this machine and that uh, is filled with temporal energy, but also is infused with his mental energy, so he's able to extend his hypnotic ability across the cosmos. And since it's a tra temporal transmat chamber, any being that's in inside the chamber can be sent somewhere. Now, there's so much temporal radiation, of course, that most beings will be destroyed, but the Master has augmented. Time Lords wouldn't be destroyed. But the, the and a normal Dalek would, but the Master has augmented the Daleks to um, to survive such temple radiation. This was a deliberate reference, at least a preference, you could say, but pre-reference. Um, to, maybe it's the same thing when you think about it in terms of differences of pronunciation, but this, this is all a reference to um, the surprisingly oblique, but when you think about it, very important reference in the episode Doomsday in the new series where Rose reveals to Mickey that the Doctor has told her that during the time where the Daleks evolved to absorb temporal radiation. Uh, and so, I'm not, I wasn't thinking to myself, okay, this is the being of the time war, although we're fairly close when you think about it in terms of the series history. Because we're not very far from Genesis of the Daleks at all. But in any case, the... The idea here is that the the Daleks have evolved to absorb temporal radiation, which is exactly what happens in the Time War. So, continuity, essentially. A, a mirroring of these of these events. So I suppose you could argue that the Master, in a way, you could argue, starts the Time War 
um, because he gives the Daleks that ability. Now, will that ability last? Who knows? I'll have to circle back to that idea when in the last episode of this uh, confidential series, when we know everything. But um, the Daleks have now the ability to absorb and um, carry, uh, like a virus, you could argue, a temporal radiation that it contains the Master's will. And since it's a transmit, you can move these objects or these Daleks somewhere else. And so there's a demonstration where the Master reveals um, uh, a movement of the Dalek, and so he, he infuses the Dalek with the temporal radiation and this his neural network directive. And and he sends the Dalek to uh, Telos to face the uh, Cybermen, specifically the Cyber Controller. Um, and why the Cybermen? Well, like a lot of people, I've always felt it's a, a shame, at the least, that Pertwee never had a dedicated television Cybermen story. Yes, he sees them in um, battles, and to a certain extent, in the Five Doctors. And yes, there's a, a Cyberman somewhat actually, not, not old footage, but from the Troughton years or something, but an actual Cyberman in Carnival of Monsters. Yes, there's probably old footage and such of a Cyberman in the Mind of Evil, but again, these are all tangential events, and the, the first, which is the last of these stories, chronological order, the Five Doctors, is not even in Pertwee's own era. It's a Davidson era story. And those other stories I mentioned, well, again, Mind of Evil, it's a flashback, you know, probably a still... Uh, photo still from the invasion, just you know, put onto the screen, placed on the screen, and then in Carnival Monsters, it is a person dressed in a Cyberman outfit, but one person, um, probably just filmed in front of a green screen or something, color separation overlay probably, um, on another set, who knows on what day, pro and probably not even with, not even, and certainly not with John Pertwee, certainly not the third Doctor at all. So it's just oh, a Cyberman is around here, but that's all you get. Um. Of course, you had Revenge of the Simon, but which was commissioned by Barry Letts, but um, it missed um, John Pertwee by a little bit. So, references to the Cybermen, again, the Daemons, the Three Doctors and such, but he never, the Cybermen never appear, which is a shame. A real shame. Um, and so I felt that if I'm going to write a third Doctor story, that's kind of a big story like this, and it's building, I'm going to feature the Cybermen somehow. Um, definitely. Definitely going to feature the Cybermen. And, granted, the, the third Doctor doesn't is not exactly in the same scene as the Cybermen. He's watching what's happening, but I, I felt that, um, had Big Finish not done things like, um, the Bluetooths quite a number of years ago now, or more, much more recently, um, the Tyrants of Logic, which has the Doctor interact with the Cybermen, third Doctor, I should say, I might have felt a little more compelled to maybe somehow get the Doctor to tell us also in the story. But since Big Finish has covered that territory, I felt that that was a little less necessary. And also because in the narrative sense of the, the final game, the Doctor's on Scaro, he, he's observing these events. I, I, I couldn't really think of a, an easy way to get the Doctor to tell us and then back to Scaro. I just felt that, that would be a little bit of overkill. Um, that doesn't mean I don't want to have such a story. I'm, I'm largely pretty much committing myself to writing eventually a third Doctor Cyberman audio adventure for some for some future purpose. But um but in this case yes you have the Cybermen. Um and the Cyber Controller 
is the one that speaks. Um, you hear other sirens screaming and such when the Dalek, of course, um, releases its energy and, and, and it shows that this energy, when released, can take over the minds of Cybermen or similar beings. Uh, I should mention why, why the Cyber Controller. Well, I've always liked the character of the Cyber Controller. I was very pleased. Uh, he's a very intimidating character. One of the earliest on Patrick Troughton's drawings I ever watched was Two of the Cybermen, like probably most people, um, in the absence of most of his earlier stories. So, or at least prior to the um, prior to 2016, when a lot of these stories started getting animated. But um, for Troughton, actual footage, yeah, Tomb of the Cybermen is pretty much where you want to go. In any case, um, I liked that the cyber controller was in that story. I was very impressed and intimidated and scared by that character. I was glad that they brought the same actor back for um, Michael Kilgariff, I mean, for the controller in Attack of the Cybermen in the Colin Baker years. In Attack of the Cybermen, the, the, the controller is mentioned, and there's a reference to the doctor. Well, the doctor says, oh, well, the controller was destroyed. Now, I'm sure clearly that intention, the intention was referenced back to Tomb of the Cybermen. But I thought to myself, well, so much has happened since then, and you have all these other stories with cyber controllers and such, that there's no reason that that reference has to be to that story. For example, a parallel example, in Revelation of the Daleks, when the Sixth Doctor meets Davros at the end of the adventure, they reference what is presumably the events of Resurrection of the Daleks, where the Doctor says, last time I saw you, you were, your ship was destroyed, and, and Davros says, yes, but I, I had a, uh, an escape pod. Clearly, at the time that, re that story was referenced, that reference was um, pointing to Resurrection of the Daleks. Since then, you've had the Lance Park and Audio uh, Davros, which has the Sixth Doctor prior to Revelation of the Daleks. A rather bold move to do, predating someone's first appearance with a particular Doctor. Uh, and at the end of that story, set in the middle of uh, Season 22... Davros escapes and is on a ship that explodes. So, one in t the original intention of a reference has changed and shifted slightly. So, it's the same thing here, same idea, which is okay. Yes, there you can have an adventure in between. You have an adventure where the Doctor, prior to Attack of the Seven, has encountered the Cyber Controller and he thinks, oh, he was destroyed. But, in, from my perspective, it does not have to be Tomb of the Seven, and let's be honest. At some point, you're going to have a situation where I'm sure Big Finish will do such a story where it definitely won't be <laughs> um, to the Cyber anymore because I'm sure the Cyber Control will show up with one of the intervening Doctors. You have three. So that's what happens here. The Cyber Controller appears. It is the same Cyber Controller, I should say, from Tomb of the Cybermen. Um, and if anyone wants to know what does it look like, well, <laughs> I don't know. Um, a mix maybe between its tomb appearance and its attack appearance. One thing that's always, just as a quick aside, that um, I've always found very interesting about the Cyber Controller, and this is honestly a thing that's always interested in me, that it motivated me to include the Cyber Controller in the final game, is that he's an interesting relic-type character. Um, when he appears in Tomb of the Cybermen, he and those Cybermen have, they're Cybermen from a long time ago, no matter what. They are... Supposedly they've been in hibernation for 500 years. That time dating is a little odd now, given that you have all these other Cybermen stories, set certainly between the events of the Moon Base and Tomb of the Cybermen, in terms of human history, fictional human history. Um, so the idea of Cybermen being dormant for 500 years is at the least um, de debatable. But 
one very interesting thing about the Cyber Controller is Michael Kilgariff, when he first appeared in Tomb of the Cybermen, he he had he was you know he's an actor and he was given stage directions of how to move and how to how to act as a Cyberman. And he didn't have his voice, of course. He spoke with someone you heard someone else's voice. Well, when Kilgariff returns seventeen years later in um, Attack of the Cybermen, one very interesting thing is that Kilgariff is not given any stage directions. F- who knows why, but as he tells the story, he was not given, never given stage directions of how to move as the cyber controller. Um, and even though he's got a very different costume, he's still the same actor, and so he's, he's not told how to move. And so he does the interesting thing of, he remembered how he moved as a Cyberman 17 years earlier. The very cool thing, and I think this is actually one of the most fascinating things about Doctor Who, is just overlapping history, same story, same continuity, but different production teams, is that you have an actor, Michael Kilgariff, who had played a Cyberman in the mid-1960s, who's now, among other actors, different actors, in the mid-1980s, who are playing Cybermen that not only look different, but move very differently to how the Cybermen used to move. They move a little more like people, more fluidically, you know, like robots, but faster and smoother than the 60s Cybermen. And yet you've got that actor who lo- is in a costume that looks like the 80s Cybermen. He's, because he's not told how to move, he is relying on his own muscle memory, and acting muscle memory, so to speak, and he's moving like a 60s Cyberman. And people have noticed when you watch Attack of the Cybermen that the cyber controller is moving very differently. His body language is very different from all the other Cybermen. I and some others have thought that maybe the reason for that is, again, this is, has nothing not much to do with the final game, but I'm just saying how much it interests me. Uh, continuity, physical continuity. We've often thought that perhaps the cyber controller post Tomb of the Cybermen is re- you know found and recovered by later era Cybermen and upgraded, so to speak, but the upgrade is not necessarily perfect because maybe the cyber controller's operating system is not perfectly portable. Who knows? I'm a, I'm a computer scientist, so I think about certain things in these terms. And so the whole idea is that it's a Cyberman. He might look new, but he's quite old. And he... And it shows, his age shows a little bit in his movements. Underneath the sleek, shiny, 80s-style Cyberman is a very old, perhaps tarnished, 60s Cyberman. Something to think about. So setting that... So I mention all that because I was very enthusiastic about setting that Cyberman in the 70s. That, so in my mind, this is the Michael Kilgariff, not voice, sadly, but still, this is James Harden. He did a wonderful job. This is the Michael Kilgariff Cyberman in an interim appearance. What does he look like? Well, uh, <laughs> I suppose he looks um, maybe across. What it, anything in your mind as to what a cyber controller would look? So no, no head handles. Probably has a chest, you know, though maybe a slightly different version. Um, to the Cybermen of that era. Now, what does a Cyberman of that era look like? I, by default, I just take a cross between the invasion and. Um, Revenge of the Cybermen. A bulkier version, maybe, of um, the Invasion Cybermen. But you can see its head. Its cranial unit. Um, so, let's just say, it's maybe a sl- less cone-shaped version of, this, of his cranial unit, but you can see, and it's somewhat silver, but you can see something red inside. Its brain, I suppose. Um, I might as well take a moment also to talk about the voices of the Cybermen. Um, 
This was definitely a point of discussion between myself and James Hart about what should the Cybermen look like, excuse me, not look like, sound like, in this adventure, because I want to make this as of the era as possible. Now, because we don't have Pertwee Cybermen of the era, it's a bit of a... It, there, there's a lot of um, range of sound motion, so to speak, because we don't have a story we can point to and say, okay, we, can, we even... With as little as we have of the Cybermen of the Pertwee era, we can at least point to the Carnival of Mosh and say, okay, well, they look probably... Of this era, they look like that. Which is essentially an invasion Cyberman, at least his headset is. Similar, at least. So they, but the Cybermen of the Pertrian would have looked like this. Excuse me. But what do they sound like? Well, um, I go to the closest source possible, I suppose, which is um, the third Doctor era stories from Big Finish Productions. Um, and we, there are so far two. Um, the Bluetooth and the Tyrants of Logic. Now, both of those stories have, um, feature Nicholas Briggs as the Cyberman. And, um, and both of those stories tend to have a cyber voice fairly similar to the, um, to the invasion. With some differences, of course, I'm sure, but fairly similar. So, very electronic. Very heavy with the electronics. Um... As a consequence of that, though, so I thought about, should I push it towards that direction more towards the, the invasion? As a consequence of that, to be very honest, those Cybermen tend to be fairly difficult to understand. Um, you can understand them, but they, but you definitely hear... They're, they're very, very um, heavy metal voices. But not deep, more like buzzing sounds. Things like that. Um... And so I thought, well, this is an audio. And Nick Briggs is a professional, so he does it very well. But, you know, you know, I'm, and we can do good things too. And I'm dealing with a professional too with James Hart, but I want to give him something that's easiest to do. And so we had a long discussion about, okay, I found a, a YouTube clip of the Cybermen voices and such. Or at least, I should say, I don't know the name of this person, but someone did a very good job of not just taking the cli clips from each story, but actually recreating the vo each individual voice. This person must have some good, you know, vocoders or something, and and, um, and would take the dialogue from the stories and then spoke it himself um, in the d individual styles. And so I thought that well, this is very cool. <laughs> um, and and he happened and he he voices the invasion style and the revenge style, and so. There are lots of different sounds to the Cybermen, but there's a pretty stark, stark... In fact, I would probably say it's one of the starkest contrasts. To how the Cybermen sound in the late Troughton era, to, in contrast to the early Tom Baker era. And as much as I love Revenge of the Cybermen, I can understand why people consider it... Uh, some of, it has, I think, an undeserved reputation of being a weaker story. I actually really love Revenge of the Cybermen. For one particular reason. Although it's the story that introduces the idea of gold as the um, as a weakness for the Cybermen, unlike Silver Nemesis, and again I love Silver Nemesis, but unlike Silver Nemesis where the Cybermen just happen to touch gold and they blow up, the whole idea of gold being a weakness is not a very it's 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 powerful but it's very difficult. It's not very effect, um, efficient because it 
Adventure Time, in my opinion, very effectively shows how difficult it is to wield gold as a weapon against the Cybermen, because you have to get very close, and you have to physically um, somehow attach or in, insert the gold into the Cybermen's ch uh, chest units. Or at least inside a Cyberman. That's hard, because Cybermen will defend themselves, and they're very strong. I think of the scene where the Doctor and Harry are attacking the Cybermen, they have the gold dust, and, and everything's you know, they're trying, but what happens? The Doctor and the Cybermen physically, the Doctor and Harry are fighting the Cybermen. The Cybermen fight them off. They grab them. They throw them against the walls. They grab their wrists. They knock their wrists into into the wall. They knock the gold dust out of their hands, and they throw it. And the, they're throwing the Doctor and Harry around. So it's a sense of well, you've got a weapon, but you can barely, you can't really use it. These Cybermen are too strong. It's a wonderfully effective scene and very scary. I remember watching that as a little, very little kid and thinking, oh my gosh, this is frightening because the close-up angles of the side of my face is coming right to the camera screen, representing the, you know, maybe your, the Doctor Harry's eyes, and just this hopeless sense of this is a, this is a monster, a metal monster, and it's, it's, and I want to kill it, and I can't. And the only reason the Simon destroyed is because his, oh, I can't, I can't remember his name, but, um, but the side character I really like, um, the dark-haired, uh, um, Man who ultimately became, after Roger, funny anecdote, when Roger Delgado died, his wife Kismet married this man. I can't remember his name, William something, I think. But in any case, that actor who was also in, um, he played alongside Roger Delgado, funny enough, as Mailer in um, The Mind of Evil. Uh, since I'm saying that, I'm going to look up his name, so I don't want to just say, oh, well, this guy. No, no, no. Um, I'm looking up Roger Delgado's wife. And, um, Kismet Delgado, of course. And Kismet Delgado, William Marlowe. William Marlowe, who was in, um, he was in, of course, Doctor Who. And he played Maylor in, uh, yeah, in uh, Mind of Evil. And Lester in Revenge of the Simon. So the character of Lester. I really like his character. He, um, he sacrifices himself to destroy the Simon. Because they have the bomb units, and uh, and he releases his and destroys the segment. So in any case, James Hart and I, we had definite discussion about how should the segment sound. And I mentioned Revenge of the Segment because, especially I love the story, I can understand why people feel, at the least, and I probably might agree here, uh, that the cyber voices of Revenge of the Segment are probably our least favorite. Just because they, there's very little... Um, cybernetic sound to them, very little inflection. It'll, I will say this, it allows a lot of, um, as much as you can as a vocal performance by Christopher Robbie as the cyber leader of that story. But even so, it, some people have known him, he sounds, I think he was South African. And there's nothing wrong, quote-unquote, nothing wrong at all with the South African accent. In fact, I think they're very nice-sounding accents. But, but I think it's not so much, oh, he sounds South African, it's that he sounds human. And that I can understand. There's a kind of an interesting idea of what if he is pretty much sounding human. These are post-Cyber uh, War Cybermen. Maybe they're not terribly... On the outside they look machine, but perhaps they're a little more human on the inside. It's rather this eerie. But in any case, we really dis discussed what should these Cybermen look like. And our thought was, well, we'll just kind of pitch it in between the two. The very buzzy, mechanical sound of the invasion and the very human sound of, um, of revenge. And the result is what you hear in part five. And it's a very kind of strong electronic, certainly, but, and there's a, it sounds electronic, but also sounds quote unquote human. Wonderful sound to the cyber controller. You can tell there's a lot that I want to, to say about this little topic. 
Um, and so in terms of the plot, we progress and the doctor, the master gloats and reveals, see, I can, with this machine, I can take over the minds of, of all life. And the doctor says, no, you can't. You can only take over the minds of, cy- of cybernetic life, things that have cy- cybernetic minds, like the Daleks, like the Cybermen, things that are enslaved to logic. And then you have a neat little subtle discussion between law, um, debate between logic and free will. And, and from the master's perspective, um, he, he doesn't want to be a Cyberman or a Dalek, of course, but from his perspective, he enjoys those types of minds because they are enslavable. They're, they're slaves to logic, slaves to a design, a pattern, and something that he can exploit. But he admits, yes, that his machine is at the moment limited to such minds. But this is where the story kicks into a higher gear. It uh, ratchets to something stronger, which is he introduces the Doctor to a mach- another part of the machine, which is essentially kind of an alcove where someone can sit or stand. It doesn't really matter. But something is insert uh, kind of a... In my mind, it's pretty typical. You see some clear um, helmets, so to speak, with a lot of circuitry. attached to someone's head, but inside the circuitry there's a space. And, and you know, I was thinking to myself, how do I convey this in audio dialogue? And I thought, well, just state it. You can state it. You know, you don't want to say things where you have, you're telling without showing, because you can't show. You have to be very interesting with the dialogue of story, these audio stories. But my, my idea was, well, just state it. What do you see here, Doctor? Well, I see a space. Well, what is the shape of the space? Well, it's crystalline. And then we lead to the Master revealing that what he intends to use is a particular crystal. And he thanks the Doctor, of course, and I, this gives me a chance to explain what happened a little bit from the transition of episode, part three to four, which is when the Doctor disrupted the, the time storm with his TARDIS. He used his TARDIS and piloted it. Um, the TARDIS is what we call the HADS, but I'm um, grateful that uh, Terry Cooper pronounced it in the different way, which is H-A-D-S, showing that perhaps the Doctor is a little more loose with his terminology, just calls it HADS, but the Master might call it, you know, Hostile Action Displacement System, he would say H-A-D-S system, but... So, you know, in, in between, he's a little looser than the Time Lords, but not as free and loose as the Doctor. Nice little midpoint. But in any case, that system, from, first shown the Crotons, um, caused the time the TARDIS to, you know, escape, but in doing so, it pulled history forward into the future where the Master reigned supreme. And he says, you've done me a great favor, but you caused me one inconvenience. Because history has changed, um, I'm missing this one piece of the puzzle that I wanted to get beforehand. And now I have to find it. I need your help to find it. And the revelation is, this is the Metabolus... Uh, this is meant for the, the blue crystal Metabolus three. Um... So, obviously, he's aware, of course, of the Green Death and such. Uh, he says, and I want that crystal. And this is the wonderful hashtag. This sets the hashtag that I've been using on our, some of our social media accounts to promote these upcoming episodes, which is, the question, yes, I'm going to ask you a question, Doctor, and I expect an immediate answer. Where is Miss Grant? So I take the slightly amended hashtag, where is Joe Grant? Um... So obviously that's setting up something, and if you've seen the cover for Part 6, which is, there's no secret to it, is that Joe Grant is returning in the final game, Part 6. Voiced by the wonderful um, audiobook um, voice uh, artist, actress, uh, Julia Eve. So welcome, Julia, in the next episode. I look forward in the next installment of this Confidential series to talk about her and her performance as Joe Grant. And I should say that last night I listened to one of her, her first scenes in this story as it's being prepared, so it's wonderful stuff. Um, and yes, by the cover, yes, she will meet the third Doctor again. <laughs> um, and I should, I should take a moment also to say that, um, 
the original Joe Grant actress Katie Manning, still is the actress, um, has been very kind to our production. You know, I've sent her the episodes. I was able to get a hold of her through uh, Twitter. Um, and she's a very, very friendly woman and uh, very kind to fans. And she has heard um, at least the first episode of our story. She says it's one very well done. And she said, you must have had a wonderful time making it. So she's, um, and she's responded since about some of the episodes. So she's been very supportive and very kind. So thank you, uh, thank you, Katie, for for your uh, enthusiasm and your your goodness to Doctor Who fandom. And we hope to, to do you uh, justice, your original performance and your character justice in the last episodes of, of the final game. But we're still not, we are still not there yet because Joe Grant has not arrived. This is the question. Where is Joe Grant? Um, and then, as the story progresses, of course, um, the... Meanwhile, of course, you know, the, the Doctor's companions are still working on the override device and they're just about ready to, to create it. Uh, but a little slight bit of comedy happens, which is that the Doctor escapes the Master by, of course, knocking him out. And then he, you with his Venusian Aikido, and then he uses the Master's machine, the mental machine, to project his own thoughts into the Daleks. And forcing them to, in a way, be like all the, de- the technician Dalek, which is being all hesitant. But he's given them free will. Uh, from the lowest technician to the Emperor. The Doctor is able to use that, and he says, don't attack me or my friends. And so the Doctor escapes. And uh, rescues his friends. So that's the psychology that right, right when Liz is about to try to use the override to open the doors, the doctor arrives and, and, and rescues them. The master, of course, regains control of the Daleks. And while, while he's doing that, the doctor and his and company escape to the transmat. Nice little bit of comedy again where the doctor says, Oh, please move over, old chap, to a Dalek. I need this space. And he operates the transmat, and he's going to send all of his friends back to Earth. And they're saying, why? Why? And he reveals that Joe Grant needs protection. But he's going to send everybody away to Earth, and he, and the Doctor is going to go and um, recruit the Thals to attack the Dalek city. Now, this is a this was a moment where I thought to myself, I need to show that the, these people are inseparable. Yes, they'll have to by necessity separate because they have someone else who's in need, Joe. But um, they're not going to leave the Doctor alone. And so there's a neat little moment where the where Yates says, well, Doctor, it looks like you have a, uh, a mutiny on your hands, and for, and for once, and this time, I'm um, pr- proud to be a part of it. So I really want to mention, of course, throughout the course of this episode, when earlier on, when much earlier in the episode, there's a brief moment where Thorpe is explaining himself and, and, um, and his, his, his uh, problems. Well, I should say, this is part, a contrast to Part 4, excuse me, where Thorpe, when he's first discovered in the Dalek prison cell, he's somewhat defiant still, and saying that he was do- he doesn't think the Master's right, but he's still working through his emotions and saying how could- he didn't trust the Doctor for a reason and such. He couldn't trust his morality. He's an alien and whatever. Um, but he also reveals that um, when he's... But at first he says, why should I even explain myself? You'll never understand me. And he's saying this to the Brigadier, but Yates says, sir, explain it to me. I once was in- betrayed my friends, and I understand what happens. I can understand. I can understand the reasons behind a betrayal, and of course Thorpe says, "Yes, you were part of Operation Golden Age, and the Master set it up." I should also say, yes, calling back to the continuity weaving. Of course, I felt that the Master should have been in, or easily could have been in, uh, a villain in the um, the invasion of the dinosaurs. So, weaving the Master into the stories in which he didn't appear, but really should have, even happening there in Part Four. Well, here we see that this character arc of of Yeats' redemption continuing 
by showing by showing him working with his friends, but also working with people that are betraying allies and such, and now understanding as having someone who has betrayed his allies before, his friends, saying, I, I, can't, I wouldn't do that again, but I can understand why people do it. And now we have the situation where everyone's not betraying, but, you know, you know, standing firm against the Doctor's intentions, and Yates saying, we are all mutinying against you, Doctor, and I'm happy to do it. Because <laughs> we, we love you, essentially. We, we care for you, and we, we, we stand with you. Therefore, we are going to stand with you. We're not going to leave. So, in a way, I like to think that the Doctor was perhaps testing his friends in a small, teasing way to see if they would do this. And they did, and he's, because the Doctor, he wants them there, of course. He protects them, but he also wants them there. Because he wants them to grow, and he wants them to to learn what they need to learn while he's with, while they are with him. And he with them. So the, the team splits into two. Um, and this was a neat little thought of, in my mind of, okay, who goes with who? Who would go with who? And I thought, uh, and I thought to myself, although I want the Brigadier and the Doctor always together, the Brigadier acts in a way as a surrogate doctor in the sense of uh, he's, a, in, he's a leader. He's a co-leader, so to speak, of this group. The Doctor's the, definitely number, leader number one, but the Brigadier is definitely leader number two. So, um, I thought, well, if you're going to split the groups, you need a team leader. One of those leaders has to be the Doctor, therefore the other has to be the Brigadier. So the Brigadier, as much as I want him to be alongside the Doctor, he's not going to be with the Doctor. He's going... And because the Doctor's already said he's going to um, talk to the Thals, because he knows the Thals of old, the Brigadier is going to Earth. So I thought, okay, you have two teams. Doctor on one, Scarrow team. The Doctor's on the Scarrow team. The Brigadier's on the Earth team. Who, who, how does, how does it all shake down? Well, it was pretty much a process of elimination, but it wasn't a very hard process of elimination. And the process of elimination was that, rooted in, in resistance to the idea of having the Doctor, the Brigadier, like I said, and Sarah Jane together, because that's something that comes from later years. Um, just as appropriate as if it were in the 70s, but in later years, starting kind of like with Paradise of Death, the radio place, I mean, the Ghost of End Space, um, not really mentioned in time, but certainly in that era, and then um, in later years, later stories and such. Um... The idea of those three together, the Doctor, the Brigadier, Sarah Jane, a wonderful team. But if it were just those three together in this story, absolutely. But to split into two with so many other people, I, I decided, okay, well, the Brigadier's on this one team. But this allowed me to put Sarah Jane on the Doctor's team because I thought, well, this is a season 11 story. And because you have so many people around, the Doctor and, and Sarah Jane... Um, have not had a whole lot of time to just be on their own. And, to be fair, they still are not on their own in this adventure. But, um, excuse me, in part five, in this part of the adventure. But I thought we should, I should at least get them on their own as much as possible. So, the Doctor and Sarah Jane are on Team Earth. Um, as for, um, excuse me, Team Scar. They're on Team Scar. So, Team Scar, the third Doctor and Sarah Jane. I thought, um, when it came to Mike and Benton, I thought it was practically interchangeable, but I, then I, but I thought to myself, Mike, I want him to be with the Brigadier so he can, in a sense, be back with Unit and, and in, in the thick of things, so to speak. So I put Mike on the Earth team, and therefore Benton um, acting more as the brawn, you know, and physical protection. The Doctor can take care of himself, but Benton also is very handy, too, so Benton will be on the Team Scarrow. I felt that Liz um, should go with the Brigadier and, and Mike um, as a as a 
as she says, so she can be a, a, a girl, another girl on the team, um, but be a, a friendly, a friendly face. It's not just soldiers marching to help um, Leah, uh, Joe. So there, you have you have those three together, and then that left me with um, Thorpe, and I felt that Thorpe would be best used on Scarrow. Because uh, he volunteers to come, so he says, you know, if you're going to be talking with the Thals, that's my arena. I, I, I'm, I can persuade a lot of... I'm, I'm good at persuading people. So, four people on the Doctor's team, three people on the Brigadier's team. And uh, and then they separate. The, the Brigadier and his tr- uh, team, Brigadier Yates and uh, Liz, um, head to Earth through the through the tra- this big transmit system, and they return to Earth. And for them, that's the end of their storyline in Part 5. The remainder of the story then focuses on the Doctor's team with Benton, Sarah Jane, and Thorpe. Um, well, the Master has regained control of the Daleks. Um, the Doctor takes his, his group to... They're going to go to the, um, the Thals, and, um, but they're still in the Dalek City. So they need a way to escape. So this gave me a chance to do a little bit of action. I have the Doctor and his team um, hurry to the Armory. So there's an Armory chamber with a lot of weapons and, and such. And... It's allowed me also to mine Dalek history, which is that Daleks can fly now. And they've been flying in some way since at least on screen since the Sylvester McCoy years. And often not overlooked, you had a Dalek that was probably flying even in Revelation of the Daleks, so the Colin Baker years. But um, beforehand, you could have Daleks um, levitating, but they need, instead of it, the idea of the power of levitation was not built into their units, their base, the base of their tanks. And so they used, as you see in Planet Daleks, so appropriate for the Pertwee era, these anti-gravity um, discs. Big, some of the Big Finish um, promotional artwork by Lee Sullivan and such some years ago promoting things like the Apocalypse Element or the Mutant Phase or earlier era Daleks shows the Daleks on these anti-gravity pads. These little, small little anti-gravity pads. And so I thought, well, let's use that. And so you have a reference to these pads, all these anti-gravity flight pads um, in the armory. And Sarah Jane says, well, we can't use those because there are four of us and we're not we're a little too wide. Even for Daleks, she says, and, but then the doctor says, well, thankfully there are models which can carry platoons. So there's this, I think it was just a large pad with, um, with, um, with some control uh, cir- um, circuitry and, and instruments. And so they use that and the Daleks, some Daleks arrive, the, they, but the doctor is able to get it floating and it has a cannon and such, and so the moment of cannon fire to blow away the Daleks, and then and then further cannon fire to destroy the Dalek um, power, the city's power systems, which are just down the same corridor. Again, convenience, but it's referenced as such. Um, and to carry the story forward, conveniently located, as Doc says, on the other side of this corridor. And uh, and this is where, where I wanted to give, again, a further reference to wonderful Brigadier things without the Brigadier being there. The Doctor perhaps uh, somehow is aware of this saying. He tells Benton, Oh, Benton, fire upon that thing. Say it, oh, let's say, give it, let's say, five rounds rapid. And, of course, Benton gives it more than five rounds, but still it's there. And um, destroying the power systems, of course, um, um, incapacitates the Emperor Dalek. Um, So now things are a little more chaotic on the Master side of, um, of the equation. Power systems of the system of the city are failing. The Emperor Dalek is failing. So what? Uh, Give me that nice little reference. Trust a tin pot dictator to be wired into his city's controls or some such. Um, but this is where we set up the the climax. While the Master is considering what, what's his next move against the Doctor, the Doctor uses the the 
anti-gravity platform's cannons to blow a hole in the uh, wall of the city. They escape, and then they also fire upon the armory, so they destroy the armory and reduce the Daleks' weapons and such, and pr to a certain extent strand the Daleks. Not fully, but in terms of the long term. They effectively strand the Daleks in their city. Because, yes, the Daleks can, f can travel along terrain, but it's difficult terrain, and... and um, across Scarrow and such, and for a, a Dalek just traveling on the ground, walking, the equivalent of human walking, it would take a while. That's why they have their anti-gravity pads, but those have been lost. They can manufacture more, but the power is down, so they've effectively crippled the Dalek city. The Daleks themselves are fine, but they're kind of trapped in their city. So, while, they're, while the Doctor is escaping, the Master devises a plan... He has, and this is where we tie the death of the Daleks more into the story, which is he has the plague missiles. He says, "Take, give me, bring the plague missiles. Um, we're going to use them, fire them against the Doctor. Use your old technology, your missile silos and such." There's some t nice discussion about, "Oh, they've never been, they haven't been used in millennia." But that's all right, um, because my system, my guidance systems are perfect. And then the Master takes radiation can canisters filled with radiation from his temporal transmit chamber to fire against the Doctor, and. Uh, this is a nice little world-building moment where, I believe this is an addition to my to the editor of the story, our Brigadier voice actor, Tony J. Filer, who gave the radiation a name, Xanthus Radiation. I toyed with the idea of, once he, he gave it that name, for a moment I thought of to toying with the idea of giving it the same name as the radiation that appears in the Sixth Doctor of the Last Adventure box at the brink of death at Lucretia, but in the end I thought, hmm... No, let's just make it its own thing of its era. Um, and so the doc Master fires these missiles, which explode. You have a nice little action sequence of the Doctors avoiding the missiles, and then just an emergency stops the missiles overshoot and explode, but it doesn't matter where they explode. They're, they are key to the Doctor's biological systems, and then and they explode, and then they affect the Doctor immediately. They're, they're killing him. See this wonderful, wonderful props and kudos to... To Gareth Severn, who created a masterful, this is a pun intended, but marvelous soundscape of the explosions and the and then the music, oh, <laughs> which um, highlights the sense of oh my goodness, the, the Doctor's dying and there's nothing we can do. But it's th that sense of stoic heroic, hero, heroism as he um, instructs Benton to land the ship, the the the, the platform, and then they're in this, the petrified forest um, world. Referencing again, of course, this is the same locations as the first Doctor and his TARDIS crew encountered in the first Dalek story on television. It's kind of reverse. Instead of going from crossing from from the through the forest to the city of the Dalek city, we're going from the Dalek city through the forest to encounter the Thals. Um, and so there's there's a sense of go find the Thals and this real sense of funer funereal moments where the Doctor is saying, "I can't, I." I'm slowing you, and the radiation in this in this um, area will kill you eventually at this pace. So, leave me. There's nothing more that I can do, but go in my name to the Thals and tell them to fight. And uh, Benton leads a, a and, and Benton and Thorpe lead a sorrowful, crying um, um, Sarah Jane away. Wonderful performances by all. Wonderful performance by Sarah um, Sarah Wheatley as Sarah Jane in this scene, and. Uh, Marshall Tankersley definitely also as um, as the Doctor is his resolute as he's clearly weak and excellent, amazing vocal performance by Marshall Tankersley. He's able to do Pertwee's voice as a weak, 
you know, tired and weak and, 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 and dying, but also rousing, you know, his energies to, to, to say, oh, you must go and you must fight. Find the Thals. And such. And uh, the stoic response of Benton is played by Richard Gurrell. Oh, it's excellent. Mark Rickmanis is an excellent performance in these episodes, too, as, uh, as, um, as Jeremy Thorpe. So, all involved. Kudos to all involved. Also, Johnny Robinson as, as Yates and, and Denise Sutton as Liz. And Terry Cooper as a master. Excellent. Excellent cast. I'm so, so thrilled to, 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 to work with them and to write for them. It's excellent. And so the story ends on a wonderful note with the Doctor's companions leaving. And I make a deliverance call fo- a deliberate call forward to the Planet of Spiders with Pertwee's last words, where he says, There is still hope. While there is life, there is, and then you hear an explosion. And there are other missiles. You can hear other missiles being fired and exploding in the air. And then this one explodes right where the Doctor is. And excellent, co- excellent little last note to sound design in that Gareth could have ended the episode with the cliffhanger sting with the explosion, and then there's the cliffhanger sting. But instead, there's the explosion, and then there's this music, which is the Gregorian uh, funeral chant. For anyone who wants to know, it's very beautiful music that he chooses to include in the scene. And then you hear the explosion, and then Pertwee, the doctor's not speaking anymore. And for a moment, you hear quiet, and then the, the kind of the, the shockwave of the explosion as it disappears, and then you hear a bird singing. And then, of course, the last, uh, the, the, the funeral march uh, song and the lament continues for a moment more. Then you hear the sting and the music. Beautiful and brilliant sound design. So, um, so kudos to that. To all involved in part five. Well, well done. Absolutely well done. So, those are my, um, those are my, uh, explanatory and, uh, mem- thoughts and, and memories and, and, uh, and, um, and exposition of the final game, part five. And it's been a wonderful experience uh, relating these events, and, uh, and I will also, I also look forward to, uh, sharing the, 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 doing the same for the remaining two episodes of this series. It was, I really honestly look forward to um, doing a, a final game confidential. I hope that this isn't the only, that this is the first of others, and hopefully many uh, confidentials to come. So, But uh, I, we haven't finished with this one yet, so I will, I'll probably be saying that again in a moment. Oh, at least, quote-unquote, when, when this series is over. So thank you, everyone, uh, for listening again to this, sto- um, this segment of the final Game Confidential, Part 5, and I look forward to recording answers to the, ne- to the final game, Parts 6 and 7. So thank you so much, and uh, as, ever- as always, everyone, have a, wonderful, have a wonderful evening. Thank you. 